How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Sounds better for the uh, for the listeners when we record the episode instead of us just talking amongst ourselves. <laughs> I think you're um, giving us a lot of credit. Gary, just get, on, just get many, on there and be like, hey, we recorded an episode. We want you guys to think about it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Gary, how many of the reviews did you find that reference flies eating poop? Just one, actually. Only one. And I wow. have it. Surprising. Uh, yeah, Dis- interesting. Disappointing. Yeah. Most of them, a lot of the lower reviews, like user reviews, are about Jeff Goldblum. They're from women saying like literally one says this movie stopped being interesting when Goldblum stopped being hot. <laughs> and a lot of reviews seem to reference that. that just right. women find Jeff Goldblum attractive and they're well, disappointed that he a lot of men not attractive too. by the end. Unless you're into that. <laughs> what flies? Giant yeah. flies? Giant uh, flies. What a weird fetish. I had to be honest. I'm not saying I don't think that I would have watched this movie. And if I didn't know it was called the fly and the, the plot of the movie, I don't know that you look at him and think, oh, it's a fucking fly. I don't think you get that right off the bat. Oh, he doesn't have wings. Right, we'll get, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We haven't even started the episode yet. Yeah, spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. If you haven't seen the fly yet, he turns into a the fucking why, fly. Why are you listening to this? <laughs> I mean, technically, he's a fly-human hybrid, so you can forgive it for not looking exactly like a fly. I did That's a lot true. of research for this, including going back and listening to our old episode on the oh, yeah? fly. Yeah. Still out mm. there, huh? That's some classics stuff on yeah. there. Like I made a joke about Mel Brooks and how there was no line about he needed to zip up his brundle fly at any <laughs> point. Like, uh, I just thought that would be a Mel Brooks contribution to the movie. I <laughs> laughed at myself. I don't get to do that very often. And that was fun. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, hello and uh, welcome to Cinema Shock. This is the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horde. Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. And I'm Mr. Todd A. Davis, curator of the Davis Museum of Natural History, which includes the longest, whitest nose hair you've ever seen, a collection of navel lint arranged by color, and a giant jar of jizz. Welcome to our final installment in our series titled The New Flesh, The Body Horror of David Cronenberg. Does the Davis cabinet of curiosities include your dick that's fallen off? Because his dick is definitely in that cabinet in this movie. I was going to say, I was going to say that same thing, or at least the Jeff Goldblum prosthetic. Like, could you, that's got to be somewhere. Somebody's got to have somebody owns. Somebody's got it. David Cronenberg probably owns it. (laughs) But I imagine like he put it in a jar full of like uh, really clear or as clear as he could, like apple juice. So it just looks all preserved and shit mm. <laughs> oh and to answer your question no uh my dick has not been retired yet so uh <laughs> until my dick actually falls off <laughs> it will not be added to the davis davis uh museum uh no really glad we're starting around the davis dick. Dick. <laughs> you know, that's how you know you're old when you start getting like the white pubes 
That's that's <laughs> when it really kicks in. I, wow. I don't think I've got those yet. So it's, I feel good about that. Even with all that gray in your beard. I know I've got a ton of gray in my beard. But no no white pubes yet. No white pubes yet. Wow. Wow. We've, we're learning more about Gary today mm, than I had bargained for. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, did you say that this is our final episode? Uh, our final installment in the series. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's what I mean. I didn't mean final episode ever. I hope. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I meant final episode of the new flesh. Yeah, not getting uh, rid of us that easy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is the conclusion to our David Cronenberg series for now. For now, yes. you know, we'll. He's got a lot more movies after this, but as far as the body horror of David Cronenberg, this is this is the end of the line. So after the success of Scanners and The Dead Zone uh, and the critical respect for Videodrome, despite it not doing that well at the box office, David Cronenberg's name had held some weight in Hollywood. Uh, He was considered a filmmaker who was very professional. People liked working with him uh, and for whom producers and studios could safely invest their money. And more than likely, they're going to get a pretty nice profit back. But more than that, he'd started to become a brand, you know, with themes and eccentricities that were seen as kind of his calling card. Uh, especially in horror movie circles. This is a guy that was talked about a lot in horror movie fanzines like Fangoria and Cinefantastique, things like that. He was a a major kind of cultural figure among horror fans in the early 1980s. In 1983, David Cronenberg completed a script for a new movie for Universal that he had done Videodrome with them. Even though it didn't do well at the box office, they still wanted to continue that relationship. So they asked him to write another script. It was a script called Six Legs. Uh, which never developed any further, uh, though part of it, parts of the script would resurface in Naked Lunch uh, a few years later. Uh, Six Legs was, oddly enough, uh, an ensemble comedy that Cronenberg later compared to Ghostbusters. Interesting. Yeah. He described it as being, uh, this is a quote from Cronenberg about uh, entomologists discovering an insect on a Caribbean island that is addictive when you eat it. The adventures of the main guy and his two strange friends. So the Ghostbusters angle is that it was about these three kind of eccentric guys running around in a van with a symbol on it, only instead of a ghost, it's a, like a big bug. So, but of course, this was a year or so before Ghostbusters. Uh, Universal ended up passing on the project. I guess, I don't know if they just didn't like the script or, or what, or maybe they just didn't think Cronenberg was funny. Uh, I, I I can't see he, he's pretty funny in interviews like he's got this very dry humor yeah I was gonna know, say that I really I, that I, I really like he's got a real but, deadpan sense to him yeah yeah but you don't see a lot of that come through in his movies in any of his movies really mm-hmm. so I, I I struggle to imagine a comedy directed by David Cronenberg I can imagine almost any other genre but a comedy is is kind of hard so I don't know why Universal passed on it but you know that's my best guess Uh, but as we know you know Cronenberg's fascination with insects would resurface Uh, I I think if I recall right Gary you might remind me on our first episode wasn't he like super like he was like a junior entomologist or something when he was a kid didn't we talk about that back on our first episode so he's been into bugs like forever yeah I was actually going to talk about that a little bit more because he does he does uh mention that that was some of his issues with the original fly like the original film how unrealistic it is yeah. <laughs> well, it was there's also no, during there's this, no truth in that art, Justin. <laughs> it was also during the same period of his career that he started receiving a bunch of offers from Hollywood. Uh, we mentioned some on our last episode. You know, he was offered films like Beverly Hills Cop, uh, Witness, Top Gun, uh, Flashdance. We mentioned all those, I think, last time. Uh, but the one that he 
came closest to actually making was an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which of course was renamed Total Recall. Uh, of course, we detailed that film's journey to the screen, including a lot of David Cronenberg's involvement and his contributions to that film when we dedicated a full episode to it on our Paul Verhoeven series a few months ago. So if you really want all the dirty details on that, go listen to that Total Recall episode because it's it's pretty cool how much of, even though the, the film is very different from what Cronenberg was planning, there, there are some major elements of that film that didn't exist before he came along. If anybody's looking for a connection to like our last episode, I mean, he was doing it because of his relationship with Dino De Laurentiis, who was you know, doing this movie at the time until his right. company went bankrupt. Uh, but that's how Cronenberg was actually attached to it in the yeah. first place. And Cronenberg spent a lot of time working on Total Recall. Uh, according to him, he wrote something like 13 drafts of the script. Uh, before he kind of realized that he and the film's producers, uh, which included, you know, Dan O'Bannon and um, Ronald, Ronald uh, what's his name? Shusett. Shusett. Yeah. Shusett. Uh, he kind of realized that they were kind of trying to make a very different film. He was not making the film that they had planned. Uh, they were making, they were wanting to make a film that he had no interest in. It, Ronald Shusett, I think, wanted to make it like Indiana Jones and space on Mars, you know, which is not a David Cronenberg movie. No, not so much. <laughs> so when, once they realized this, they decided to part ways, but he had done a lot of work on it. Uh, so he was kind of burnt out after that. So when the, and he was also out of work after that. Mm -hmm. So when the next offer came along, he quickly accepted it. And the film that resulted would end up being his most successful and probably the film that's most associated with Cronenberg's style of body horror more than any other film in his filmography. That film is, of course, the subject of today's episode, The Fly. There is a limit even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? Wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pipe with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. Could be contagious. Oh, I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Help me. Please help me. Wild man, this yeah, is, yeah, this is a blast from the past, dude. So, this is is this the one you're most uh, you've been most like uh familiar with of this series? Yeah, this was one that was in heavy rotation like Sunday afternoon on Fox when they would just kind of play, you know, out outside of like football season, you know, they would just play a bunch of movies back to back Sunday afternoons on you yeah. know, the local syndicated, you know, uh, probably Fox or. NBC or ABC, one of those stations. And yeah, this was, this was in regular rotation. Cause it's, uh, you know, besides the body horror, it's actually somewhat clean. Like it's not, it's not like a super, it's not vulgar. I would, I should say it's not it's, vulgar. There's yeah. one sex scene. Well, I guess there might be, I guess maybe two, yeah. uh, but you don't see anything. Yeah, you don't really see anything. And I mean, you know, considering some of the things we've talked about on this show, it's pretty tame yeah. by comparison. Yeah. So before we continue on this, I do want to give another source that I used uh, pretty heavily on this episode. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Fangoria magazine uh, again. Uh, Fangoria number 58 had a cover story with the fly uh, where they had an in-depth interview with Chris Wayless, Tony Timponi, who is a longtime writer for Fangoria, still writes for Fangoria. Uh, He he interviewed Chris Wayless. And in fact, the two issues of Fangoria before this uh, uh, issues, number 56 and 57, there was a two part interview with uh, with David Cronenberg that Tony Timponi did. So between those three issues, I got a good bit of information. The the Cronenberg one uh, interview was very interesting. There weren't a lot of like facts about the filming or the development, but it was a lot of like really cool information about his approach to the material, if that makes sense. So development on the fly had begun in the early 1980s when a producer named Kip Oman approached a, a screenwriter by the name of Charles Edward Pogue with the idea of remaking the 1958 film of the same name. That movie had been directed by Kurt Newman and starred Vincent Price and Patricia Owens, a classic. Uh, that film, which itself, it was a very big release, uh, a very big success upon release. Uh, it spawned two sequels, The Return of the Fly and The Curse of the Fly. And the original film, though not the sequels, was based on a short story by George Langdon. I actually now, have to watch both of those sequels, or all three of those movies. I, I bought the yeah. box set. And, yeah, yeah, uh, the Shout Factory. I've, I've, I've got that. Yeah, that I, was awesome. But I've not watched the sequels yet to the original. How are I'm they? I'm actually a big fan. I think the second one is the most lacking. The third yeah. one just goes, like, wild with the concept. And I was actually yeah. pretty impressed with, I guess I could say it now, because it doesn't really, I mean, there's no reference that david cronenberg necessarily watched it or anything but the curse of the fly definitely gets into body horror like it uh i mean they touch on it in part two there's a scene where he he tries to transport a uh a guinea pig or he does like a guinea pig with a guy and the guy ends up having or the guinea pig has human hands and that's kind of weird but, <laughs> but, but in the third one the third one's pretty dark man it, it like uh it's it's completely disconnected it acts like the i don't know it, it's it's like it tries to connect but nothing kind of makes sense storyline wise it's like the yeah. grandkid of Vincent price's character or the or his his brother in the original yeah. movie anyway point is uh there's definitely some stuff where like people get teleported and then they come out as like mushy variations of things Fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah uh, the weird. first movie is really good. I mean, it's you know it's a little hokey by today's standards, but it's pretty good. It's very gorgeously shot. I think they they shot it in CinemaScope and uh, full widescreen, which I think the sequels are both black and white. Is that right, Gary? Yeah, yeah, so um, a little bit lower budget, but right. And they, man, I'll tell you, the the first one still to this day. Uh, I I don't know if it's just my thing with spiders or whatever, but that it the scene at the end where he's like where they're actually looking at him in the web and he's just like screaming for help as the spider just like crawls towards him, even as campy as it looks. I'm like, man, that's fucked up. Like, yeah. And they just, yeah. just kind of watch it happen. They're yeah. Just like, I think it's wow. probably a little, that probably has a little bit to do with your, your uh, fear of spiders, Gary. Uh, Cause I think that seems goofy as hell, uh, but it's still <laughs> iconic, you know? <laughs> but yeah. Is, I just think that would be silly. so terrible. You're just like laying there like trapped in the spider web. And the spider yeah, I mean, yeah, it would suck. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But anyway, the second one plays with that again, where they do the head swap thing. But uh, we'll ah. talk about that more. <laughs> so uh, George Langland, who who wrote the original short story, uh, we could do a whole go on a whole little side quest, do a whole like bonus episode on this guy because he's very interesting. Uh, but here's kind of the Cliff Notes version of, of this guy's story. He was born in Paris, France, to French and British parents, uh, and and he worked 
as a spy for the Allied powers in World War II. He even underwent plastic surgery to alter his appearance before being dropped into enemy territory because they thought he was too recognizable, like his ears stuck out a little bit. And and so he had to have his appearance altered to make him look kind of more more neutral, more boring before he got dropped behind enemy lines. Wow. So he's on a mission. Uh, he He parachutes into France and he is captured by the Nazis. The Nazis condemn him to death. They, they're holding him in a, a concentration camp, and he escapes. So this is a this is a movie right here. Yeah. This, this whole thing is a movie. Uh, he wow. returned to England, but he didn't like. He wasn't done with the war. He actually ended up participating in the Normandy landings on D-Day, like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. He was there, uh, and he ended up getting all kinds of you know, war medals from France and England. Like this guy was uh, has an insane life, and if that's not enough. When he was back in England, he formed a friendship with Aleister Crowley for a while. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to write this one, Aleister and me. Yeah, this Aleister, yeah. Aleister and me. I want to <laughs> see a whole movie about George Langland and Aleister Crowley just hanging out like a little buddy comedy. I want to watch. Yeah. That. <laughs> oh man, that would be so much fun. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, and it wasn't until after the war that he actually began his writing career. He wrote his memoirs, novels, short stories, several of which were turned into movies or episodes of television, like on Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone. Uh, but none would be more well-known than The Fly, uh, which was a short story originally published in the June 1957 issue of Playboy magazine. Of course, Aleister Crowley read it and was like, dude, this is... This is messed up. Something's wrong with you, man. <laughs> Come on. What's what's going on in that head of yours? And the story, like I, I saw David Cronenberg talking about it. He says, it, you know, he doesn't consider it that well written or anything. That's nothing special. And this is like the thing he's most well known for, of course, like you said. And, uh, you know, he does call this one high concept that he he actually just hit one of those perfect things that. Well, now it spawned a few movies and it's probably going to spawn a few more before it's over with. So, uh, well, you, and the interesting thing is that like one of the aspects of the, of, of Cronenberg's version is the idea that there's, you're splicing human DNA with fly DNA, right? And those right. genes are getting spliced together. The idea of DNA didn't exist. I was about to say they, they, that or probably wasn't the original even the film. Cut. Yeah, that probably wasn't even the concept in his brain. Like he didn't, yeah. he didn't really know how that would ever work. It yeah. just, you know, that it's like it's like he was years ahead of the, the science almost, yeah. you know, in, in the way that he imagined it. <laughs> so when Charles Edward Pogue began write, writing the new adaptation of the fly, or when he began working on it, when he, he, you know, he gets approached by this producer and his agent, and they they bring him the original story they're saying hey we'd like you to work on a new version of this he first of course read the original story and then he watched the original film which he had never even seen and he kind of becomes familiar with the source material decides he's going to try to tackle the project so he approaches a young producer at 20th century fox named Stuart cornfeld about getting the ball rolling on a 20th century fox owns the rights to the original film so they they're the ones who are going to have to produce this cornfeld quickly agreed And then the duo pitched the idea to the executives at 20th Century Fox, who were uh, pretty enthusiastic about it. They were enthusiastic enough to put up a bit of money to pay Pogue to write the first draft of the screenplay. So initially, he kind of followed the outline of the original film. But then Pogue and Kornfeld 
thought it would be better to kind of rework the idea to focus on a gradual metamorphosis instead of the scientist instantly becoming a monster. Uh, as Kornfeld put it, he didn't want to make a head swap movie, which is basically what the first movie is. Yeah, He wanted to show the transformation over the course of the film. But then they show studio executives at Fox, the first draft, and they sort of hated it. <laughs> like they were so <laughs> unimpressed that they immediately withdrew from the project. But Kornfeld, being a, a pretty good producer, he kind of starts to negotiate with them and he is able to convince Fox to distribute the film on the grounds that he could set up financing through another source. So basically he's saying, Hey, if I can get the money together, will you guys use your resources to send it out? And the new source of funding came from a, what seems like a pretty unlikely place, which is Kornfeld's mentor, Mel Brooks. So we're not going to get into a lot of history on Mel Brooks. You guys know who Mel Brooks are, right? Our listeners probably know who Mel Brooks is. Yeah. Uh, And also, that's a lot to cover. The dude's like a hundred years old and there's a lot yeah. of life there. We're going to have to do a whole <laughs> yeah. series on Mel Brooks one day on this show. Oh. Um, but for those who don't know the name, Mel Brooks is, I don't think it's too much to say, one of the funniest men to ever live. Uh, Mel Brooks is a comedy, he's comedy royalty. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the writer director behind such classic comedies as the producers, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs, um, Robin Hood Men in Tights, if you consider that a classic, I do, I uh, but not everyone yeah. does. <laughs> but needless to say, you know, you hear that list of movies. Mel Brooks is not a name that you would normally associate with a movie like The Fly, but this wasn't really unprecedented. Uh, in fact, Cornfield, so he had been working with Brooks in the past. Uh, he'd been an associate producer on History of the World Part One, which is another Mel Brooks film. Uh, but he was also the executive producer on another unlikely film that Brooks funded, which was David Lynch's The Elephant Man, yeah, which if like you've it. ever seen The Elephant Man, not funny, not a funny movie. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> incredibly depressing. <laughs> I mean, uh, they have the Brooks film thing just for this reason, though. I think he he realized, yeah. you know, that his name connected to things would make assumptions. And uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He didn't want his name on it because he didn't want people thinking that it was going to be a comedy uh, because they would be very disappointed if they went to see the elephant man thinking they were going to get a Mel Brooks style comedy. Uh, but yeah, they, I mean, this is a, probably a story for another series down the line, but they had seen Eraserhead and that's, what prompted them to ask David Lynch to direct the elephant man, you know, the, and Eraserhead is also Eraserhead's a little funny, but not in a Mel Brooks kind of way. Right. Neither, neither of the movies have anything like you'd expect. If you just go in on title alone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kornfeld gave the fly screenplay of Brooks, the ones that the uh, Poe had written and Brooks liked it, but he felt that it might need to be rewritten by another screenwriter. He liked the idea of it, but he didn't love the full script. So he hired another screenwriter. Initially, he hired a guy named Waylon Green, who had written The Wild Bunch, uh, you know, great film, but they didn't like his draft. They felt like it was kind of not going in the right direction. So they brought Pogue back on to kind of polish up the script, continue working on it. While this is all happening, Kornfeld and Brooks are also trying to find a director for the project. They don't have, they don't have a director yet. And the first choice was naturally David Cronenberg. You know, they they knew who this guy was. Uh, they knew that this material would work for him. But unfortunately, Cronenberg was unavailable because he was tied up working on Total Recall at the time. Their next choice was a young British director named Robert Bierman, who Cornfield chose based on the strength of his short films. He had not really directed a feature at this point. He later went on to do, I think, Vampire's Kiss with, uh, with Nicolas Cage. 
That's, I think that's his biggest claim to fame, because as we know, he didn't end up doing the fly. Uh, so Beerman gets hired. He's flown to Los Angeles to meet with Pogue. They were kind of just getting rolling on the very early stages of pre-production when Beerman's daughter, who had been va- vacationing with their family in South Africa, I think his wife's family owned a farm in South Africa. Uh, she was killed in an accident. Like it sounded, it sounds horrible. It was a, an accident on the farm where one of their kids, like like unlocked the brake on a tractor and the tractor ended up ro- like rolling over their other kid, uh, like an absolute tragedy. And Beerman, oh, uh, of course, immediately dropped everything, got on a plane to go to his family. And then Brooks and Kornfeld waited a month before asking him if he was going to be able to resume work on the project. Uh, understandably, he wasn't able to go back to work so soon. So, and he told Brooks that. So Brooks, is, you know, he says, hey, we'll wait three more months. I'll contact you again, see if you're ready to go. Uh, after three months, that's what Mel Brooks did. And Bierman told him that, you know, he still was not ready to go back to work. He was still processing this. Uh, and Brooks, of course, completely understood. And he, you know, he just released the guy from his contract. So they're kind of back to the drawing board at this point. They don't have a, they don't have a director. Mm. Uh, they don't even have a particularly good script at this time, but they have a good idea that they knew is worth pursuing. So they're going to keep working on it. Then as chance would have it, Stuart Kornfeld, He's in the hallways of 20th Century Fox. He meets with a fellow producer by the name of Scott Rudin. Uh, and he, he's kind of telling him this story how, you know, they don't have a director. They're still trying to find someone for the fly. And they, how they had wanted David Cronenberg. But, of course, he was tied up on Total Recall. And Scott Rudin says, well, Total Recall is kind of falling apart. So you might want to give Cronenberg a call again. So hmm. they did. And at this time, David Cronenberg's left the project, uh, left Total Recall. They call him about the fly and Cronenberg was enthusiastic about it. You know, he'd been considered for it before, but uh, he liked the idea of doing the fly and he agreed to direct it, but only on the condition that he was able to rewrite the script himself without any interference. Uh, He would have to, you know, he would still show the script to the producers and stuff, but he's writing the script on his own. And Kornfeld, you know, he, he, he agreed, but he kind of reluctantly, agreed to that you know uh but just like that cronenberg's on board we have a director so cronenberg goes to rewrite the script and what he does is he basically throws out almost everything from pogue's draft and completely (laughs) rewrote it from scratch (laughs) he kept the basic concept uh and oddly enough the subplot about the uh the, the main female character who had a different name in pogue's script but about her becoming pregnant and then dreaming that she gives birth to a giant maggot actually originated in Pogue script. I don't think it was a dream sequence of that. I think it actually happened in that. But that seems like one of the most Cronenbergian things about the whole movie. And it did not originate with Cronenberg, which was a, a fascinating thing to find out to me. Yeah, he'll say <laughs> yeah that discussion that he rewrote the characters and the plot, which he says sounds like a lot, but it's not everything. And there was a lot about the original script that he essentially liked and kept. He said he never actually honestly read a script before that sounded so much like himself but he said definitively like the the love story the seduction the whole thing there is is him um yeah in the original he, script the the couple was already married just like in the original 50s film yeah he also says he he hated that the scientists you know even just like the first movie the scientist loses his voice pretty early on uh he wanted a scientist that would be articulate and able to express what's going on throughout the transformation or disease yeah. or whatever. He, he added the part about Veronica being a journalist because that gives an excuse for 
him to have to put everything into words yeah. and and describe what's happening. Yeah, because Goldblum doesn't lose his voice until the last act when his mouth literally falls off of his face. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think in the commentary, David Cronenberg's like, and here he does finally <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> he's like, but we're done with him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he he rewrites pretty much all the dialogue re re uh, writes all of the characters. He even fused two characters from Pogue script into a single person, which ended up being Stathis Borens, John Getz's character, but he kept a few, a few key moments. And I think most importantly, he kept the idea that the main character's transformation be gradual over the course of the film. Uh, despite extensive rewrites though, Cronenberg actually insisted that he and Pogue share a screenwriting credit because he felt that his version could never have existed without Pogue's draft as a starting point. This is very unusual, by the way, uh, because that means he's sharing residuals on that mm-hmm. with somebody else. Cronenberg, it, when you hear people talk about Cronenberg in interviews, they always say that how, how much of a professional he is. And this is kind of part of that. Like he really felt that, you know, he was building on the foundation that that Pogue had written, even though he rewrote it, like the initial concepts were his. And I think that's super gracious of somebody. And it, it, it's something he actually had to go to the writer's guild to kind of argue and fight. He wrote this. Well, he didn't really have to argue and fight, but he, he wrote a very impassioned letter to them telling mm-hmm. them why he thought that Pogue should also have co-screenwriting credit on it. No, that's that's awesome. It's very classy. No. Yeah. I mean, he, he even says that it was that basic premise of, of a gradual transformation in Pogue's script that, that actually attracted him to the project in the first place. So if it had not been for that initial draft, he might have never signed on for this. Right. So we've got a screenplay. Uh, everyone's pretty happy with it. Uh, they, you know, there were some back and forth here and there with the producers, but it's pretty much what Cronenberg wanted to do. And with a script in place, Cronenberg assembled many of his regular crew members of uh, names that you've heard over and over again on this series. Uh, Mark <laughs> Irwin, Carol Spire, you know, all these same people are all involved again on the fly. I have this funny so what, hearing. Uh, I meant to mention before that just uh, when he was rewriting the thing, he's talking about that he had watched the original and the things that bothered him as a kid when he watched it. Uh, he said he he knows that there's like campiness involved and, and that has its own charm which works on me personally, but he says there's, he said there were two main things he had to fix. He says, uh, one was the proportions of the fly head, no pun intended, bugged him. Um, <laughs> he would, uh, he said he could never reconcile in his brain. Why, even as a kid, why the heads would just change size, why there's a giant fly head on this guy's body and a tiny <laughs> human head on the fly body. <laughs> right. And he said the one that bothered him the most going about something we were talking about before he said uh, in the in the original fly, there's this shot that's from the POV of the fly, like looking at the guy's wife. And he says it's this the mosaic. classic kaleidoscope looking yeah. image, right? And, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's like the fly's perspective. And you see because the fly does have all these like little facets of like different parts of his eyeball. But he was like, as a junior entomologist, as I was at the time, I knew even as a kid, this is not how flies see. There's no inherent value in the repetition of the same image over and over again. That does not help an insect in any way. He says, so like a dragonfly, for example, has almost 360 degree eyes. Each facet of an insect's eyes is a different piece of a puzzle. It's a big picture. Uh, He's like, it was just so wrong scientifically to watch that. (laughs) What a fucking nerd. (laughs) I I was determined. 
that in my movie, we would not make those mistakes. No kid like me was going to see my movie and say, yeah, but that's not how insects actually do this. And yet his fly has eyelids. Well, so he does talk about that. But yeah, he says, uh, he said the thing he loved about Pogue was that he had actually already hit on this in the script. He was with the rethinking of the DNA, which actually was barely even coming into public consciousness at that time. He said that, right. that rethinking, the gradual transformation because of like fusing things together. You could have like, elements from both. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so he does, he does explain like for the fly at the end, he said the only reason that that's that way is that he needed to express emotion. He sure. Like the yeah, fly had to have it. And so he justified in his brain, like, okay, well, most of him is the fly now, but he's still got Brundle's eyes. Right. And, There's uh, still some Brundle DNA in there. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. But uh, he also said another thing that bothered him about the original is uh, it's also set in Montreal. Uh, and he says everybody in the movie has French names, not French Canadian names, and French <laughs> accents, yeah. which bugged him because it is really weird. He says, anybody that knows Quebec knows that there are two, these are two different things, French and French Canadian. Uh, He says, so I don't know. Canadian nerds found a lot of uh, strange things about these things. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're at a point where we've got a, we've got a director, we've got a good script. We've got the um, usual suspects and, and, you know, Cronenberg's regular crew assembled. Now it's time to cast the film. So despite having a solid script, and a director on board who had just scored a very big hit with the Dead Zone. Casting the film actually proved kind of difficult uh, because it was, after all, a remake in a time when there were they, remakes were far less commonplace than they are now. I mean, they existed, obviously, uh, but they weren't all the rage like they are now. Right. Uh, it was also a remake of what was considered a B picture by many, although the original, which, as I mentioned before, was shot in color in CinemaScope, it was certainly not treated like one upon release, although you could probably say its sequels were B movies. But then there was also the prospect that whoever you cast as the lead would have to sit in the makeup chair for hours. And a lot of actors simply don't want to do that, Yeah, uh, which I get. Mm. Uh, the pr- producer's first choice for the lead was John Malkovich who pretty quickly passed on it, uh, I think because of the makeup thing. Although, imagine this movie with John Malkovich as the fly. Oh. <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> uh, John Lithgow also passed on it. He called it icky and grotesque. Uh, it was not something he wanted to do at the time. Uh, Mel Brooks actually wanted Pierce Brosnan, but Brosnan passed as well. I, I'm not sure I can imagine Pierce Brosnan, although he probably mm. would have done okay in this. Interesting. Uh, ultimately, of course, the lead role went to Jeff Goldblum, and now it's hard to imagine it any other way. Uh, And that was actually against the wishes of the executives at 20th Century Fox because Goldblum wasn't like a big star. I mean, he he had done some movies. He was known, although I don't know that he had had the lead role in anything. And they're also looking at this guy going, he kind of already looks like an insect. You know, (laughs) probably like a big praying (laughs) man. Chris Wallace, we'll talk about more. He said that he felt his face would be difficult to to work with for the makeup effects and stuff. Something about Goldblum's face. Eventually. You know, Kornfeld and Cronenberg, they fought to keep Goldblum in the role. And the Fox president at the time, Larry Gordon, eventually conceded saying it was, quote, their mistake to make, which I can't imagine a studio executive saying that now. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, your, it's your funeral kind of thing. Cronenberg definitely <laughs> says that makeup thing was the huge part for like a ton of those guys. Like they, they yeah. thought they'd get lost under the rubber stuff. And uh Oh, yeah. Jeff Goldblum looked at it as like a big challenge. Like he wanted yeah. it really badly. Like he, he really did. Cause they looked at guys like, 
Uh, I know who you just mentioned, but they like Michael Keaton, Willem Dafoe is in there, Richard Dreyfus, John Travolta. It was so like Mel Gibson was like really close and uh, went with Lethal Weapon instead. Wow! Yeah. Just, well, just, just to imagine, to fir- imagine we're in an episode of Scanner or was it Sliders? Sliders, yeah, remember? Yeah. We, and we slide to an alternate universe where Mel Gibson <laughs> uh, chose this instead. Right. And then we got to figure out who who would have Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum plays Riggs, yeah. <laughs> John well, Malkovich. To, to, uh, to further hammer home the idea that it's not very comfortable, uh, over on Computer Resume podcast, available now, or you ever, you ever heard of podcast? it? Yeah, you've never heard of it. But we just finished uh, talking about a season three episode, which um, had one of the guest stars was Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And he plays uh-huh. this alien creature who's, of course, covered in prosthetics. Sure. Um, he has gone on record in interviews saying that that experience in the makeup chair on that on Star Trek, very, came, he came very close to quitting acting altogether. Yeah, some actors just hate it. I mean, they, so, they hate acting through yeah. the makeup. They hate the process of getting the makeup put on. Yeah. I don't know that. I mean, I'm not an actor, so I can't speak to the acting through the makeup part. But the idea of sitting for like four or six hours just perfectly still while stuff oh, yeah. gets put on your face sounds miserable to me yeah uh, well, and, he, and, and, this was, and, and, and jeffrey know. dean morgan's experience was in the early 2000s yeah that's 20 years removed from mm-hmm. the process as it was in the mid 1980s yeah <laughs> i mean some actors just thrive i mean then you've got guys like doug jones who've made an entire career out of it and and i mean doug jones is one of the greatest of all time at emoting through prosthetics yeah uh, if not the greatest of all time Check honestly star trek discovery justin I know he's on there. He's great. He and Doug Jones are old friends. Yeah, <laughs> not really. True. We met once. It was very nice. <laughs> uh, uh, so the, the good part for Goldblum, uh, and we'll talk about her more too in just a second. But they, uh, DC, definitely said uh, that, that's what I call him now. DC. Um, DC. <laughs> he uh, tight. You're tight with DC. Yeah, uh, you know me. He uh, stupid. <laughs> He said that Goldblum, you know, while he was sitting there for the thing, that one of the great parts for him was that, you know, Gina Davis and uh, said that she would sit and read to him and sing to him and stuff while oh, he's sitting in the nice naked chair. Yeah. <laughs> well, at this point in his career, Goldblum is about, uh, he's like a decade into his career. The Fly, of course, is his biggest role to date. He, he had made his big screen debut in 1974 with a very small role as freak number one in Death Wish. Uh, he gets, you know, for director Michael Winter, he gets beat up by Charles Brosnan, I believe, <laughs> that or shot. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> he, he had a few other small roles roles over the next few years, including reuniting with Winter for The Sentinel uh, and also in Woody Allen's Annie Hall, both of which also featured, featured Christopher Walken in small roles. So another little Cronenberg connection there. Nice. Uh, just for the con- record, I don't think that Jeff Goldblum does die in Death Wish. I think that does he, he not? Just I rapes, can't remember. He rapes Charles Bronson's wife and daughter, and then just leaves. He doesn't get revenge. I don't upon? think Charles Bronson, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think he ever actually finds the people that did it. You know, he just goes for vengeance because he's just pissed off in general. Let's you do know. a Charles Bronson series. We should just and do like all, into the, all guy. the Death Wish movies and Ten to Midnight and all that. All and the then get into the shit. Indian guy or whatever. I forget where he's from. The guy that like looks like him now. That's like the oh, dead rigger yeah. for him that does yeah. movies. And then there was also, you know, we talked about the Bruce Lee, the least Bruce exploitation movies back in our Bruce Lee episode uh, yeah. when we were doing Kill Bill. And there's a guy named Bronson Lee who's really just a Japanese guy with a mustache, but he's a badass. But he only loses. <laughs> 
Bronson Lee in like one movie. <laughs> Goes by his real name and others, but yeah. And then there's Bronson we, with Tom Hardy. And then, yeah, sure. That, <laughs> you got to save that for a Nicholas Winding Refn series, I guess. Anyway, yeah. we've gotten off subject here. Where were we? Have we? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about the cast. Okay, Goldblum. So he does The Sentinel. He does Annie Hall. Uh, then he has a... a much bigger role in the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which, if you've been listening to the series, you know, also featured Dead Zone star Brooke Adams. So there's a lot of fun connections here. In 1985, Goldblum appeared in three movies. One was Into the Night, the John Landis film that featured David Cronenberg in a small role. Uh, the others were uh, Lawrence Kasdan Silverado. I think he'd been in another Lawrence Kasdan movie. I think he was in The Big Chill with for Lawrence Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan, mm-hmm. of course, writer of Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and then he was also in a horror comedy called Transylvania 65,000, uh, directed by Rudy DeLuca, who coincidentally also worked with Mel Brooks a lot throughout his career. He co-wrote a bunch of Mel Brooks's movies. Uh, he's a comedy guy, but uh, he directed this movie called Transylvania 65,000. And one of Goldblum's co-stars in that film was Gina Davis. Hey. The two, they met there. Uh, then they started dating. They'd eventually get married in 1987. They were married for three or four years, I think. But when Goldblum was cast as Seth Brundle in The Fly, he actually suggested Gina Davis for the other lead role of, of Ronnie, Veronica, uh, Brundle's love interest. Now, Cronenberg kind of had reservations about casting a real-life couple in the role, uh, but he was convinced after Davis read for the role. In fact, he was ready to cast her immediately. They had not even seen anyone else. And then, and Stuart Cornfield was like, maybe we should make like, just try to see some other actresses before making this decision. Yeah. And they did, but nobody was as good as Gina Davis was. They came close with, uh, for what I read, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Laura Dern read. And there were, there were some people, they came close with Linda Hamilton who actually, uh, hated the script after seeing the part about giving birth to a giant maggot oh wow so like they were they were close but then she was out not quite well that's funny because uh that actually ties into davis's career in a funny way because davis was fairly unknown at the time she had begun her career as a model uh she was working as a model when she was cast in her first role which is a in a very small part as a soap opera actress in tootsie and then after that, she had some television roles and uh, shows like Knight Rider, Family Ties, Remington Steel, before landing the lead role in a sitcom called Sarah, which only lasted one season in 1985. I'd never heard of it, so I looked it up, and it co-stars Alfrey Woodard, Bill Maher, and Bronson Pete Show, uh, you know, uh, uh, from, what is it? What's that fucking show where, where he plays Balky, Cousin Balky? Oh, <laughs> Perfect Strangers? Perfect Strangers, yes. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, she had actually mostly been known for comedy at this point. Mm. Uh, Gina Davis was, but it was actually during this time when she was doing all this television work that she auditioned for the role of Sarah Connor in the first Terminator movie. Nice. Uh, so they, they just, cool. just kind of traded roles. They you know? it off. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> uh, like Cronenberg uh, was open to uh, Goldblum because he thought he, he keeps saying like Goldblum was a marriage made in heaven for him. Like he just thought that there was just, he was perfect for this. Like he, yeah. he was geeky, he had that nerd side of it, but then he could become very athletic. Uh, he just had this. Plus, he he loved that he was like six four five something. Well, like that. Well, it also helped that that's part of what made them want to cast Davis in the role too, because they needed another. They needed an actress who was fairly tall, since they were mm-hmm. going to be in so many scenes together. And uh, Gina Davis is six feet tall. So yeah, well, he one hundred percent whatever he was like, what attracted me to it? Uh, I don't know the idea of a woman who was tall, beautiful, eccentric, really funny. 
I guess that might yeah. be it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and he said that was the thing with uh, Goldblum was his eccentricities, his charisma. <laughs> he said he, he the, the thing was, is like, even when he was talking to Goldblum, he was like, he needs an actress that can keep up with him. That, yeah. that, that felt like a big part of it. And while they were like, trying to figure it out, he was like, when he actually met Gina, he was like, oh, well, this explains everything. Yeah, when they were filming some of their scenes, because they had been dating for a little while at this point, Cronenberg actually had to get Gina Davis out of the habit of talking like Jeff Goldblum. You know how when you're you're in a relationship with someone, you can pick up some of their cadences and stuff. Yeah. And Jeff Goldblum has such a very specific cadence to the way that he talks that she would just unconsciously start talking that way. And Cronenberg would have to be like, okay, Gina, let's do it again, but do it as, as Gina, not as Jeff. <laughs> yeah. He said he kept having a stop her. He said, cause it, you know, their, their first meeting at the beginning yeah. of the movie, but he's like, she comes in and she sounds more like his sister than somebody who had just met him. Like they yeah. just seem like they've lived together their whole life. Uh, the beautiful part was though, he said they knew how to flirt. So they were, they were very good at that with each other. Um, yeah. And also yeah. while we're talking about them, I, I have to say that the movie that they followed this up with is uh, earth girls are easy uh, which I will go to bat for that movie any day of the week. I adore Earth Girls Are Easy. I love that movie. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, fun and they're book. both great in it. She's especially great in it. I did read that uh, during the process of getting cast, uh, and, and there was a, and this is from like 87 in a magazine called Sinister Image. Uh, or no, no, I guess that's the movie he was on. And uh, Vincent Price was, it was an interview with him. And he said that when the remake was released, uh, Jeff Goldblum did write him a letter and oh. said, I hope that you like this movie as much as I liked yours. And oh, uh, nice. <laughs> Price said that he was very touched and he composed a reply. And then he went to go see the movie, which he described as, quote, wonderful right up to a certain point. Then it goes <laughs> too far. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Brundle, by the way, I, was, I saw, also thought this was interesting, just as an interesting side note. Uh, he's named after a Formula One racer. Of course, and, it's it's Cronenberg being a car nerd again. Yeah, yeah, and he said uh, in this interview uh, that he said a lot of his a lot of his character names he actually pulls from like motorsports, and so yeah, I knew that. <laughs> as far as the cast goes, that's honestly about it for this one. <laughs> the, the Fly is essentially a two person show uh, with a, with some occasional appearances by Stathis Borens, who's played by John Getz, who is great. I especially I, I just watched Blood Simple again uh, for the first time in a while, and he's the lead in that. And he's very, very good. And that's was, actually what attracted Cronenberg to him, I think. Yeah, it is. It is. I was I was going to say uh, Cronenberg had seen Blood Simple and uh, wanted to use him immediately. Uh, and and just just for what it is, John Getz, he's like a trained stage actor from yeah. San Francisco. He was like one of his earliest roles was Shampoo Man in a Johnson and Johnson commercial. Uh, no, that's not a cool superhero, by the way. It's just a, <laughs> boo, man. It could be <laughs> not with that attitude, Gary. <laughs> but he's he's still going strong today. Like he feels like one of those guys you just see around. But uh, I saw some stuff with him. He said that he uh, kept that rubber foot at least for a long time. The rubber <laughs> foot that gets melted off, and he kept it in his fridge. Uh, and he liked yeah. to show it to his son's friends. Uh, nice. He's uh, still, yeah, he's still working pretty regularly. I think he does a lot of TV these days. Like he's done uh, Better Call Saul and Doom Patrol and things like that. But he's in a lot of movies. He's in a few David Fincher movies, I believe. Um, Zodiac and I want to say um, The Social Network, I think he's in. But yeah. Uh, also, you know, I, I just brought him up just because 
this time around watching it for whatever reason, he's 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 got the look, the the short trimmed beard, and so he looks like Walter Peck uh from Ghostbusters. He he's yeah. always reminded me of Walter Peck from Ghostbusters. <laughs> or that dude from Die Hard. Uh man has Ellis. No dick. Ellis, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so he's obnoxious, he's an asshole, but he has to play him in such a way that he does has this side of him that he does actually love Ronnie and he ends up being sort of a hero by the yeah, end of the he's, movie. He's got a really tough role because he does start off as like this arrogant asshole who's kind of stalking her because he like mm-hmm. shows up at her apartment and then he shows up in that department store. But then he does, he's doing it because he does care about her. He's just going about things the wrong way, but he he has to play it in a way where he's at least sympathetic enough to become the hero in the last act, which is pretty difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. so I, I really appreciated him this time around because I was yeah. I don't know I've I've, lo- I've seen this movie a ton of times now, but uh, Goldblum and Davis get a lot of credit. But I'm like, man, he actually you know you kind of feel bad for him, especially from where he starts off in the movie. You're kind of like by yeah. the end of it, like fuck, man, this guy's trying. Cost him an arm and a leg. <laughs> got it uh we, we also justin we can't get out of here without talking about typhoon he's one of the stars of the movie he's Who, the, typhoon the, the wrestler no the bat the baboon <laughs> the baboon that's his name i was like is typhoon the wrestler typhoon. Uh, not a trained actor by the way if you couldn't tell he's just a baboon but <laughs> yeah yeah he yeah the, the, aren't aren't most actors yeah Ew. that's true there you trained, go. trained there you baboons go. Uh, <laughs> the only thing that kept him in check was the fact that Jeff Goldblum was so very large uh, that somebody has to establish dominance. Like he apparently went wild at the beginning. Like even with the uh, uh, the visual effects supervisor Hoyt uh, uh, said in one of the documentaries on the DVD that he would get startled by the flashing lights and the telepod. He like broke the door off at one point to get out. Yeah. And uh, you can't train also, a baboon. He got real <laughs> horny about one of the script supervisors at one point. Gina Davis. Yeah, no, no, the script supervisors. And uh, he uh, was going after her. And so the the trainer or the handler said that if it wasn't for Jeff Goldblum, like it would have been really a lot more difficult. But for some reason, Jeff Goldblum and his stature and his size, like he was seen as the alpha so he could control Typhoon and keep him in check. <laughs> Otherwise, nice. the ladies on set would have had a big problem with him. Now I'm trying to imagine um, what role Typhoon the wrestler would have played. In same this movie, same probably movie. the arm wrestling guy, right? <laughs> no, he would have been exactly in the same spot as the Batman, like <laughs> the, <Batman. laughs> the, the gas tugboat rolling around there, just trying to up people. Uh, <laughs> the arm wrestling up. guy, oh, by wait. the way, that's George uh Chivalo. Did you that look this correct. guy up at all, Gary? He I was did. the Canadian, uh, the five a five time Canadian heavyweight champion, and he he had 93 professional bouts throughout his career, never got knocked down. Even though he fought Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George For- Foreman, he never got knocked out. Whoa! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I was going to say, it wasn't just fighting chumps. He fought Ali twice for the world's yeah. title. and uh, he, he didn't win. losing by decision. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, by decision, but he never got knocked down. So, yeah. <laughs> that's impressive. Cronenberg's also apparently a uh, boxing fan. Um, yeah. That, which is crazy. Cronenberg's like, like the nerdiest manly man. Yeah, yeah, he's into cars and boxing, and uh, but also like really into bugs. 
Yeah. <laughs> they attached an actual fly to a uh, line on a fishing rod uh, for Typhoon, by the way, when he's like messing with the fly. There's an actual fly there just on a fishing line. How'd they tie yeah. it on there? I don't know, a, but I swear to God, legs. he says what that. What you do is you, ca- you <laughs> catch one, you catch one, you put it in the free, you catch one in like a little container and you put it in the freezer and then that slows them down. And that way you can I tie the string that on before. That yeah. is really yeah. weird. Then you, you let can it, put a little go. Yeah. How about that, Todd? You, you, it sounds like you're speaking from experience. <laughs> uh, I refuse to comment until I have my lawyer present. <laughs> um, all of the other roles, though, in the film are so it's it's essentially almost like a play. Like it's three people, two people with a third supporting character, basically. Uh, then you get a few other little small roles. Uh, you do you get you do get uh, Cronenberg regular Les Carlson as the, uh, you know, the abortion doctor that they visit. And mm. of course you get a cameo by D- David Cronenberg himself fittingly as a gynecologist. Because <laughs> so- That's where he belongs is in between your legs. That actually came from, by the way, uh, he had met Martin Scorsese and uh, after. Yeah. They're like, buddies at this point, I think. Yeah. Martin Scorsese had asked to meet David Cronenberg. He was a fan. And when he met him, Scorsese talked about how nervous he was to meet David Cronenberg and Cronenberg's like, why? And he said, because I've seen your movies and I just wasn't sure what you'd look like or be like because of what you (laughs) put on screen. And uh, instead you look like a Beverly Hills surgeon. uh, No, he he specifically said a Beverly Hills gynecologist. Oh yeah. Maybe it was Beverly Hills gynecologist. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And uh, Cronenberg said he thought that was ironic because he's like, I'm talking to the guy who makes movies like taxi driver. Right. Like, what do you think I thought? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that's why he decided to give himself that cameo uh, as the gynecologist of the thing. Uh, so speaking of the cast, Todd, yes. other than David Cronenberg, goddammit, <laughs> are there any other members of this cast that might have popped up in Star Trek? Well, it's funny that you mentioned Typhoon the Baboon. No, you was me. <laughs> No, no, <laughs> no. Uh, come on, I, really? I, no, no. <laughs> I was going to try to play that off. Oh, that would have been good. <laughs> uh, but no, actually, since we've begun this series, uh, David Cronenberg has uh, racked up one more appearance as Kovic on Star Trek Discovery, bringing his total appearances to seven All right. on Star Trek Discovery. He's done. He's done a really great job. But other than that. That's it. That's nobody. Nobody. I mean, it's a small cast. I really, I really, you know, Gina Davis is, uh, especially, you know, there in the mid, mid, late 1980s. So beautiful. It would have been really interesting to see her as sort of a femme fatale who's like seducing people and a Borg, a lady Borg. Yeah. Lady Borg. Sexy Um, lady Borg. Sexy lady Vulcan. Yeah. Yeah. Sexy lady Klingon. Um, And it would have been cool to see sexy lady Romulan. I think yeah. like Jeff Goldblum as uh, sexy lady an admiral. Yeah, sexy lady <laughs> triple. <laughs> to see Jeff Goldblum as sexy like lady a, Gorn. Uh, <laughs> now you can't tell in this scene, but under that mask is actually actress Gina Davis. <laughs> actress Gorda Davis. I don't know. Stupid. Uh, but yeah, uh, to see Jeff Goldblum, I think he would have been great as you know some sort of admiral who's been possessed by Goldblum's a Vulcan. Come on, if oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'd have to, I could see him he being could, a Vulcan. He could spout well, off like scientific nonsense, and he's got like 
just the the look i could how great would it have been you know considering the makeup work he did on earth girls earth girls are easy to see him as an andorian with big blue and, oh yeah the big blue antenna yeah, yeah. yeah that would be that'd be fun <laughs> <laughs> well man we're coming up pretty short on star trek roles in most of these chrono this whole cronenberg series yeah Todd, you're far fired. between <laughs> we've got no segments for you now <laughs> sorry surely surely cameron's got somebody hopefully oh yeah so when it came time to film the fly cronenberg had one major policy change in regards to prep uh, remember when we talked about videodrome uh cronenberg made it pretty clear that he really disliked working with storyboards uh which was a decision that made rick baker's job much more difficult than it might have been otherwise rick baker's been pretty clear about that for the fly, Cronenberg reversed that decision uh, to an extent. Cronenberg uh, is still generally anti-storyboard, but because this was such an effects-heavy production, even more so than Videodrome because there's puppetry and stuff involved here, he really had to plan things out months before shooting began. He would still stick to his no-storyboard policy for any scenes that weren't effects-driven, like dialogue scenes where he would just, uh, he, he prefers to, to choose his camera setup on the day of the shoot, kind of feel it out, you know. Mm. Uh, but for the effects, he really needed a storyboard. And those effects uh, and the creation of the Brundle Fly itself were the were the creation of a special effects artist named Chris Wayless. So Wayless wasn't exactly the first choice for this. Cronenberg uh, originally wanted Rick Baker back because he'd loved his work on Videodrome, but Baker had already committed to another job, which is a movie called Rat Boy, which I had never heard of. Uh, <laughs> And so I, I have to imagine that Rick Baker wished that he would have chosen the fly. Uh, rat Boy is literally about a boy with the face of a rat. No, oh. uh, it's, it's it's I looked it up on IMDb. It's about a three point five rating on IMDb right now. So I, I so I'd you're telling Rick Baker me there's didn't make a the right chance. I, I, I'm saying Rick Baker probably didn't make the best decision, but eh, he got a paycheck for it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Kornfeld had also met with Stan Winston and Rob Bottin, but neither of them were available either. So the job ends up going to Chris Wayless. He had apparently worked as like special makeup on scanners. So yeah, we this- talked. We- yeah, we mentioned him on the Scanners episode briefly. I remember. Um, yeah. yeah, he worked under Dick Smith. Uh, he had gotten his start, uh, like a lot of people that we seem to talk about on this show and will continue to talk about, including on our next series, uh, working under Roger Corman. Uh, His first credited film was on the Corman-produced Joe Dante-directed Piranha in 1978. He did the the Piranhas for that. Uh, He'd also go on to do some of his most well-known work a few years later, working again with Joe Dante as the creator of the Gremlins in Gremlins. (laughs) But yes, he he had worked uh, in the makeup department on Scanners under Dick Smith, so he had some history with uh, with Cronenberg, uh, although on that one, he was not like, the special effects, you know, supervisor or anything, he was a little lower down on the totem pole. I will say this, I guess his biggest connection might be Raiders of the Lost Ark when he worked for ILM. And uh, he He actually did a lot of work for ILM um, as well. He did. He does the, uh, the melting face. face. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He does. He gets to do that again in this movie. So, yeah. So before joining the production of the fly in Toronto, Wayless and his crew of 30 people worked on designing over two dozen different special effects, uh, special makeup effects, rigs, and puppets, all at his workshop, Chris Wayless Incorporated in California. They began their work in September of 1985, only three months before the shoot was to begin. This is becoming a trend. Uh, Chris Wayless, just like Rick Baker on Videodrome, wished that he had six months, but 
the effects world seems to be pretty volatile and everyone wants six months and nobody really ever gets six months that they want. It seems like <laughs> apparently at the time, like he was up for, like he, he said he had a conversation with his crew prior to production. He said, all right, listen, these are the options we've got. We could do this movie in this short amount of time, or we could do gremlins Two, the new batch, uh, which apparently was up for an option for, uh, he said that working on this one is going to mean having to come up with all the designs, uh, construction, all that stuff. We got three months. Uh, and he said the crew unanimously agreed that it wasn't possible, but let's do it anyway, because it's more of a challenge. And you know who ended up doing Gremlins too? Who's that? Rick Baker. How about that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in addition to the seven stages of Seth Brundle's transformation, they also provided the giant maggot baby puppet, uh, the Inside Out Monkey and the gore effects for Stathis's mutilation towards the end of the movie, you know, where he, his hand and, and foot get melted off. Yeah. Three months is very little prep time for the amount of work that was going to be required for this film. Uh, but to make matters even more difficult, they didn't have any access to Jeff Goldblum to do like a life cast of his face until October, leaving them even less time to work on the makeup effects. So they essentially had less than a month to actually construct all of the makeup pieces and suits that Goldblum would be wearing throughout the film. Since time was short, uh, designing the Brundle fly became a sort of free-for-all where various members of the effects crew just went crazy coming up with designs. Chris Wales is like, everybody just, what do you think this is, needs to look like? Show me your designs and we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll choose which ones we like the best. We'll take them to DC, see which ones he likes the best. Uh, and most of the final makeup that we see in the film was the design of makeup effects supervisor St uh, Stefan Dupuis, which is another Scanners alum, uh, with some input from some other crew members. So let's break down. I mentioned there are seven stages to this Brundle fly. Let's break down the stages of Seth Brundle's transformation into the fly. Mm. So stage one is pretty subtle. Uh, this is when Goldblum's face looks like he's got kind of a, an allergic reaction or a rash. Yeah. Uh, so Stephen uh, Stefan Dupuis simply painted the actor's face with some red and yellow and blue makeup. There are no prosthetics or anything involved. Stage two is pretty similar to stage one, but with some warts and pimples added on, some prosthetic stuff added on. Uh, the, the biggest effects moment of this stage is when Brundle pulls off his fingernail, which leaves this gross looking like pus. Behind, you know, super gross. Yeah. Uh, so for that, they actually, they built fake fingertips for Jeff Goldblum to wear, uh, molded after his own fingers. And they had uh, they had tubes connected to syringes that would go through them so that when he pulled the fake fingernail off, they could kind of squirt the pussy looking stuff out. <laughs> yeah. Stage three, uh, Brundle, there's some more prosthetic involved here because Brundle's face is kind of lumpy. He's losing his hair. So Goldblum's got a, a headpiece on with a, you know, a fake wig. Uh, for this part of the transformation, those prosthetics are covering most of his face and his ears because this is where his ear falls off as well. So they're covering mm -hmm. his ears completely and that's fake. God bless there. Roddy who still gives him a hug at the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she gives him a hug on the on the side that just lost the ear. So her face yeah. is like up against the ear hole. Yeah. <laughs> it's, gross. Really, it's really gross. Uh, is this also the moment where he starts spewing the vomit or is that the next stage? I think it's right uh, after he I does, think it's right? around here, yeah. yeah. And that, that vomit was made with like milk and honey and something else like so it just sounded like disgusting to have in your mouth <laughs> like a disgusting <laughs> thing to have to have in your mouth uh you know, or what you want on your cereal 
<laughs> just have like a little brundle fly dispenser. <laughs> Gross. He said, uh, New did from say Kellogg's that, <laughs> that scene where she hugs. Uh, he, he was delighted at how, like, for some reason he didn't expect it, but that scene like got a lot of screams at screenings and stuff. Just that she's putting her face, her hugging, yeah, her hugging girl. him and putting her face there. Uh. <laughs> All right. So stage four, Brundle at this point is barely recognizable. His head is very misshapen. He has a hernia like bulge on his left side, uh, which develops into a, an additional fly leg later on in the film. Uh, and But a lot of the footage from this stage was actually cut out of the film. I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but so you don't see a lot of it. Stage five, Brundle's head and body are lopsided. Uh, this is when he's almost completely fly at this point. Uh, Goldblum for this stage had to wear a full body suit, a full rubber suit. Uh, I do think the rubber suit is a little wonky effects wise. Yeah. I think it does look a little rubbery. It's the only part of the effects that don't really hold up very well for me. Cronenberg and his commentary even, I think, comments on it a little bit where he's like hey you can't have a guy in a rubber suit without making it kind of look like a guy wearing a rubber suit uh but on, on one hand he's got four fingers and the other one has five so which is a very subtle little uh little detail on that suit yeah it's tough he he does he does wax poetic about like if you had cgi at the time and stuff but then he talks about too that he wonders if in you know another 20 years if people are going to look back and seem think it seems barbaric but he also needed the emotion and doesn't feel like you can get that with CG or ever. And, yeah, uh, it's, it's hard to, I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, if you're doing motion capture and things like that, I, I think of, you know, uh, Golem in the Lord of the Rings movies is always the first thing to come to mind for. Me That's true. Us. And, and yeah. maybe when he's, but it is commentary, hard. it's 20 years ago, probably. So who knows? yeah, that commentary was like 2006. So Lord of the Rings have existed at that point. Uh, but also in the stage five, Goldblum is wearing a, magnified contact lens on one eye to make that eye look a little bit bigger uh and then there's also a mechanical puppet that was used in this stage that's created by Wayless. uh that's the it's got an extended lower jaw that kind of splits open to push out a fly tongue and it also is what we see when um he's like spewing a ton of that fly goop like on status yeah. and stuff you know, yeah when he's, when he's murdering him or tearing him apart at the end yeah. uh it's that it's got like the the thing with like 20 people under the floor like operating a puppet kind of deal. yeah yeah uh and th this stage stage five here uh for like the rubber suit and everything took goldblum had to sit in the makeup chair for like four or five hours every day so stage six is full-on puppet full-on fly puppet uh, this is the stage where the fully developed Brundlefly emerges from Seth Brundle's flesh. Uh, this is, of course, it's the most involved piece of uh, special effects, and it's made of several mechanical puppets. Uh, so that transformation begins when Brundle and Stathis are fighting, which does you know result in Brundle dissolving Stathis's hand and foot. And then as Veronica struggles with Brundle, you know she knocks his jaw off. And that triggers this big transformation where he his skin kind of splits and this puppet emerges out of Brundle's skin. <sighs> and the mechanical puppets that they used for that included a walking rig, which is this like waist down puppet. So for the scenes where you see where they're focusing just on his legs moving, that's a waist down puppet that was uh, required two operators to move. Uh, there's the hero puppet, which is the full body puppet that required five operators uh, they had to control the full head, facial movement, two arms, and the, that sixth extra, you know, fly leg coming out. Uh, and then there's a 
full figure fly that utilized a lumberjack rig mounted on an eight foot tubular steel support system. And uh, that took six operators uh, of being the most involved of the entire film. And then stage seven. Stage seven is what they refer to behind the scenes as the Brundle thing. This is Brundle's merging with the telepod itself. Yeah. Uh, and it's super sad. It's a very sad moment. Uh, that required eight operators working underneath the stage. And this is a full rod puppet controlled by hydraulics, cable systems, and an electric motor. That entire sequence is a puppet. Uh, it's pretty, it's incredibly impressive, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. The, and holds the, the up, is, man. It, it really does. holds and up. And I think that's because, you know, Cronenberg mentions how people would do this with CGI now, but I think this. I mean, we, I'm sure we've said this on, a sh- on the show a hundred times at this point, but these these practical effects just hold up better. Even though they still look like effects, they don't necessarily look real, but there's a weight to them. Yeah. You know, you know in the back of your mind that there's something there on the set. Like this is an actual thing in front of a camera that's actually being filmed. Yeah, yeah. there are parts of it that you can't see, like the puppeteers underneath the stage and stuff, but there's a physical thing on the set sharing space with the other actors. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes a long way to, towards something just feeling more real to me, more so than, you know, all the, the CGI stuff we see in like the Marvel movies. You know, I, I love the Marvel movies. I'm not trying to talk shit about them, but they look like video games half the time and you they feel like video games. Like the stakes to me feel lower when everything on the screen is animated. It's, I can't agree that I can't agree. Uh, you can't, can't agree, agree more. That's a, uh-huh. Yeah, I can't agree. <laughs> can't talk really we're gonna fight we're gonna fight (laughs) (laughs) i refuse to agree with this (laughs) uh not all of wales's designs made it into the final film most infamously there was a scene filmed with a monkey cat hybrid that was cut out uh you can find these deleted scenes i think they're on the blu-ray they're probably on youtube and stuff too but that also meant because they cut that out they had to cut out a lot of the footage of the fourth stage of brundle's transformation since that's when he wrestles with this mutated animal uh the reason they cut it out is because cronenberg felt like it didn't work with the brundle character they had done some preview screenings where this scene was still in there based on comments from people cronenberg kind of decided that it it made it feel like brundle was cruel to animals whereas Mm -hmm. brundle you know, before his transformation and stuff, he's not a bad dude. He's a good dude. He's got some issues. He's got some hangups for sure, but he's not a bad dude. Uh, and this scene made it seem like, oh, he's mutilating this poor animal. He's smashing like, a kitty. Poor animals. Yeah. So, so they cut it out. They also had one where it was like a homeless uh, woman who sees him digging through the garbage at one point that he ends up murdering her. And uh, they cut that out as well. What? What are you talking about? Is that, is that true? That's true. Yeah. Brundle murders. He murders a person. Yeah. In the, in the movie, there's a, there's a deleted scene where he's like digging through the trash. A bag lady like comes along and sees him. And it's like, what the hell? And then he gets up and goes and like grabs her and barfs on her and eats her. Wow. I did not know that one. Um, And that's, I, I mean, I see why they would cut that out because that makes him incredibly unsympathetic. Whereas then by the end, that last scene where he's like, you know, very pitiful it'd be hard to really sympathize with him if he's a straight-up murderer you know yeah because he never kills anybody in the movie as it is even stathis survives he's just you know maimed but uh and and it may be wrong that that it's like i don't think it's a deleted scene on the film but it's definitely one they shot Uh, i definitely remember cronenberg talking about it uh, the majority of the movie was shot on the sound stages at kleinberg studios in toronto of course 
some of the most complex scenes to shoot were those where Brundle gains the ability to walk on walls and ceilings, you know, uh, mm. where uh, uh, Veronica shows up to his apartment and he's up on the ceiling talking to her. Uh, it's a cool scene. And to achieve this, they used a, a pretty old trick uh, of a rotating set. So I was curious because, you know, we've, we've seen this used before, but I was curious as to where it originated. I couldn't quite find out where it originated, but my best guess, the earliest instance that I could recall was in a 1951 Fred Astaire film called Royal Wedding, which was actually directed by Stanley Donan, who, if you might remember, almost directed The Dead Zone. <laughs> so, Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. He also directed Singing in the Rain. Uh, which I saw after we after we recorded our Dead Zone episode, I went to see Singing in the Rain on the big screen. Man, I mean, I, I adore that movie anyway, but seeing it on the big screen was something else. It was That's I, cool. Highly recommend it. Nice. So in Royal Wedding, uh, Fred Astaire appears to defy the laws of gravity by dancing across the floor and ceiling. Uh, it is an incredible scene. Look it up on YouTube. Uh, if you look up Fred Astaire Royal Wedding on YouTube, it'll probably be the scene that's the most famous scene in the film. Uh, and it's 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 an incredible piece of, of filmmaking and also of Fred Astaire's talent because you never once think that this is a guy who's struggling to like keep balance, you know, which yeah. is what he's doing because he yeah. looks, it's so effortless. It's so good. Uh, but to achieve it, the entire set was built inside of a giant gimbal which gradually rotated the entire stage and the camera rotates with it. So the camera is attached to the set. And in fact, on Royal Wedding, I think they attached it to like an ironing board and like nailed it to the set. Uh, so it's early 50s, you know. So the right. whole set is moving inside of what, uh, picture like a dryer, like your dryer at home, you know, that uh, like a cylinder like that that's moving inside of it with the set inside of, of the cylinder. Oh, and, and, and 100%, by the way, Cronenberg uh, said they watched Royal Wedding. Oh, did they? Yeah, yeah. In the okay. commentary, I didn't even know that. But... <laughs> that they they watch Royal Wedding, and that's where yeah. they pulled this because it's like it's a classic scene. Uh, and like I said, I don't know that it originated there, but that's the earliest that I could find. Uh, it was used again. I mean, uh, oh, it's, it's been done Cooper, quite a yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been done Stanley quite Kubrick a bit. in two thousand one, where Bowman is you know jogging in zero gravity. That was done using a variation on this. Uh, Toby Hooper. In Poltergeist or Steven Spielberg, depending on your point of view. Uh, but you know, the scenes where she's up on the, the mom's up on the ceiling, you know, uh, Wes Craven does it in a nightmare on Elm Street where you've got the blood pouring onto the ceiling. Uh, and for a more what's that? Jamiroquai. Jamiroquai. <laughs> and uh, I think Jamiroquai just used a, a moving floor, right? Yeah. Billy Eilish, Billie Eilish, however, on yeah. uh, her performance on SNL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which and and that one when they actually zoom out. You, you can see the whole see set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. Uh, for a more recent example, uh, as far as movies go, look at the hallway fight in Christopher Nolan's Inception. Inception, yeah. yeah. I was just thinking, they did that Inception too, yeah. man. And it, it looks dope. It's cool. It's it sound cool... like you just started smoking weed right then. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, but anyway, this isn't a new or even unique way to pull it off, but it is still highly difficult just from a technical standpoint, because not only do they have to build a set that rotates, but they have to decorate it and anything from table lamps to candy wrappers that could fall when the set, set is rotated had to be secured. Uh, and then they have to choreograph how to have Jeff Goldblum move around the room. So uh, remember, at this point in the film, uh, this is when Brundle is sort of eating a lot of sugary sweet food. So his apartment is actually covered in like candy wrappers and donuts. And they had to put like 
some sort of um they'd put uh, some sort of material like on the candy wrapper so they wouldn't flutter you know as gravity pulled them to kind of harden them uh it, it had to be incredibly difficult to pull off yeah. it's not like if you watch royal wedding as impressive as it is the room itself is very static you know mm-hmm. there are there's a, a chandelier hanging from the ceiling which they made to where it would you know not move uh, but it's just it's a room filled with like just furniture there's nothing big on furniture the yeah that's like nailed yeah. down yeah uh, so as long as we're talking about set design, though, the other thing we have to comment on, I think, is the telepod itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were originally designed to look more like what Cronenberg described as high-tech Italian phone booths. Uh, that was what he instructed them to make them look like. Yeah, but, they're going to have a lot more glass. And I mean, in the original glass, movies, yeah. they're, they're like these glass containers you know, yeah. that you can walk So the original idea for this was to be a little bit more like the original movie. But when... They turned in the designs. Cronenberg didn't like the results. So they kind of asked him, like, okay, well, what do you want? And he told them to go to his garage, because remember, they're in his hometown. They're like 10 minutes from his house. Uh, and look at the engine of his Ducati motorcycle. Because remember, Cronenberg's a gearhead. He collects motorcycles. Mm. Uh, Carol Spire ended up designing the telepods to look like the Ducati cylinder turned upside down. So if you look at it and go Google what a Ducati looks like and look at the engine and you'll see the telepods there they just yeah. added some doors to them yeah. but that, that's exactly <laughs> what it looks like even color and everything yeah absolutely it didn't dawn on me until you said that I'm like oh yeah that absolutely yeah. looks like an engine yeah <laughs> he said he found the the original design kind of boring and uh then yeah uh if you just felt you know like you said it should, should look more like a machine um yeah. and uh he said that within an hour like spire and her team and like pulled it out and take it at the workshop and designed the whole thing. Um, one of the things I love with those teleportation things is though, too, is that he described, it, I had never thought about before, but he does uh, like motion shots for the teleportation to just give it even more of an effect. So they're like the, motion control. Yeah. Motion control. Motion so, control yeah. so they're like automated, you know, like these camera shots. And so you have to shoot it twice exactly yeah. the same well what what motion control is is basically you you do a camera movement and a computer records that exact movement so that when you go to do it again it can be the exact same a, a replication of the first shot so you could do one with jeff goldblum in the shot or the monkey or whatever and then do another one and, and kind of merge them so you can essentially yeah like have it dissolve into him the one with him not there and so yeah like he just disappears while the camera is yeah. moving and it's just kind of yeah. wicked um which was something that wasn't possible just a few years before the fly yeah i love that uh also worth mentioning i guess is this is uh denise cronenberg's first gig i think uh that's his is this the first sister. one yeah i think this is her first one and uh she's a she, she's, she's a major player wardrobe design on a lot of different things for a while, but uh, of course, all of his stuff from, yeah, she does all of his out. stuff, a costume designer, um, which is probably pretty easy for Seth Brundle because he of course just wears the same thing over and over <laughs> yeah, again. Right. <laughs> uh, which is actually a common theme. He says he got uh Cronenberg says he got from other high performance. Like he, he mentions he stole it from Einstein specifically that. Well, Einstein, I mean, that's what Seth Brundle says. Oh yeah. Yeah. Movie. I guess yeah. he does say that, doesn't he? So yeah, the just like, but you see it with guys like Steve Jobs or Zuckerberg. I think Cronenberg and, does it now. Yeah, too. and he said, <laughs> he said they just wear the same outfit, so they don't have to use any brain power to decide what they're going to wear. He said that he has actually adopted this uh, himself 
uh, since this movie. Yeah. Uh, but he says mainly because he's lazy. he said actually that another thing i thought was interesting about this shit he said uh this is the only one he didn't lose or didn't gain weight on he says every shoot he'd had up until this one he's gained 15 to 20 pounds on because why not on this one he was just grossed out couldn't eat because of all the goop no it's because he (laughs) says he always kind of fuses with his lead actor and so goldblum was his lead actor and goldblum was helping iron in between every shot at his trailer so he started working out too and uh so he ended up in pretty good shape by the end of this uh movie uh which is interesting he said that jeff was actually in way better shape than you think like they brought in gymnasts you know for all those shots with the magical bars that you could do gymnastics on that appear in goldblum's loft but he said that the gymnasts were actually impressed with goldblum because he could it actually helped a lot but he could start those movements out like he yeah, could, like when he's on the chair the first part yeah. of that is actually jeff goldblum yeah like he could actually do them and so and then uh, the next shot is a guy who's like a foot shorter than jeff, jeff goldblum yeah you said that was definitely the hardest really part. tell in the movie but he, yeah gymnasts are not six foot four no no, yeah. no. he said he, they were getting like the largest gymnast they could find but yeah. so nobody's he's like goldblum and and they they you know have to do like multiple takes so like gymnasts are used to like training to like get the movement down and land it like once and they need the shot like 30 times and so he's like so we're running through gymnasts he's like i, I think i blew through like 20 or 30 gymnasts on the shoot or something <laughs> so um real quick i want to mention we've, we've mentioned him a few times but Stuart cornfeld uh, who was the producer on this he uh, he actually passed away in 2020 of cancer I believe, but Stuart Kornfeld is, has had a long career. I mean, he got his start working, you know, with Mel Brooks. That was kind of the beginning of his career, but I think he's probably best known for, uh, he, he actually worked, he, he started a production. He, he was business partners with Ben Stiller and Ben Stiller's production company, Red Hour Productions. Uh, so he produced a lot of Obviously, a lot of Ben Stiller movies, you know, uh, Dodgeball, Starsky and Hutch, Blades of Glory, Tropic Thunder. The Tom Cruise character is actually partially based on Stuart Kornfeld and and Tropic Thunder. Um, (laughs) Even the dance moves. Maybe. (laughs) But uh, here's something that you might like, Todd. The name Red Hour Productions originated in a Star Trek episode called Return of the Archons from 1967. Oh nice. man, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. So he's a big time producer. Yeah, but he uh, he he did unfortunately pass away a couple of years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. But long career, long very successful career, and, and the production company still exists with uh, you know with Ben Stiller running things. But uh, yeah, he was a big part of getting David Lynch's career off the bat and uh, and moving kind of David Cronenberg into a whole new direction. It feels like. So nice. I just want to give him a few props. Uh, he was also friends with Frank Zappa uh, during the time that they were making The Fly. Uh, which is wild anyway, that you're just hanging out with Frank Zappa and yeah. <laughs> interviews with him. He even, he's even like, yeah, I know that sounds crazy, but I was just hanging out with Frank Zappa at the time. And they were at <laughs> Frank Zappa's house and Zappa, they, they would like go watch, he'd go watch movies at Frank Zappa's house and stuff. Like they were buddies. They'd have movie nights. Uh, can you imagine having movie nights with Frank Zappa? <laughs> <laughs> but they were there at, at the time that they were making the fly or they were about to make the fly, I think. And Frank Zappa just hands him a tape and says, here, this is the score for your movie. And this is before the movie's ever f- completed. 
Like they're not looking to make a score yet. And the thing is, people had been trying to get Frank Zappa to do a film score for years, and he always said no. And at this point, he hasn't. The movie doesn't even exist, and he just hands him a tape with a bunch of music on it, saying <laughs> that uh, here you go. Uh, of course, Kornfeld had to run it by David Cronenberg, who, as we know, has a long-standing relationship with Howard Shore. So the Frank, Frank the Frank Zappa score never happened. But just imagine if this movie had been scored. Oh, by Frank Zappa. It would have been a different experience. That's for sure. <laughs> it's already kind of a different experience compared to other stuff that that Howard Shore has done for David Cronenberg, because I feel like in some of his earlier stuff, it's very almost like synth driven, very otherworldly and weird. And for this, they're going for something deliberately like very operatic to a point mm. where like they were watching certain scenes and Mel Brooks and Stuart Kornfeld are like, is this a little over the top? I mean, Jeff Goldblum's just walking down the street here and this big bombastic score comes on, but Cronenberg wanted that big over the top operatic feel. He would say, no, he's, yeah. he's headed to destiny. It's right. Important. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is, he's headed to destiny with uh, his jacket with no shirt on and high waisted yeah. uh, khaki pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's what a score uh, Howard Shore's best scores for a movie, uh, at least outside of the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, I think that it's pretty incredible. And the theme to the fly, I feel like is pretty iconic at this point. I mean, that's a, it's a really great theme. I feel like movies need more themes like that, but mm. uh, it's instantly recognizable if you've seen this movie, I think. Well, and it's, it's fitting. Like you said, I mean, the idea, uh, even, even the setting of the movie, you know, Cronenberg talks about a lot, the idea of Seth's lab and home in a loft, like this old used place uh, was unusual at the time. It is like, it's like yeah. a, kind of a common theme. He's like, but at the time that wasn't really something that a lot of people did. And he was always obsessed. He says that one of the things that drives him in movies, and you can go back and look at stuff now and see it like from, from the kids in the barn and stuff and the brood and like all this other stuff. He said he loves rethinking of a device or structure, like to how, whatever it's been used for before, like how you can reimagine it to appeal uh, to something else. But uh, yeah. he said they knew that from the beginning that this space would be where most of the movie is. And it's a small cast, three to four characters. If you count the baboon, all in this one area <laughs> and uh and that's what we wanted from the music you would say is like not over not over the top but not restrained in any way and uh and he said and then there's this love story uh and then the love triangle that happens he said he, even at the time like he wasn't even sure that part of it was even going to work and going back and watching it himself he even says like wow this really does work uh, and, and so much so, in fact, I mean, he was like, this is like an opera. This is like a stage play. Uh, well, you can go on YouTube and watch The Fly, the opera. Uh, yeah. It exists. And uh, cool. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, but yeah. kind of a cool concept. So nice. less iconic than Howard Shore's score was this song that was commissioned for the film. <laughs> As was common at the time, the film's producers wanted a tie-in song for promotional purposes. You know, it, it, promotional purposes help sell soundtracks, etc. So they contacted Brian Ferry. Uh, the result, Brian Ferry, I don't know if you know, he's a lead singer of Roxy Music, uh, Love is the Drug, all that, you know. Uh, oh, so yeah. the resulting song is called Help Me. The song's fine. Little, it's kind of forgettable, but it's fine. It's not a bad song. Uh, but Cronenberg ultimately felt that it didn't fit the tone of the film. Uh, Brooks and Cornfield originally wanted to play it over the end credits, and they kind of fought 
Cronenberg on it a little bit. So he screened the movie for them and they agreed that it felt very out of place, especially considering how the movie ends to go into this movie, to, to go into this song rather. Uh, instead, the song ended up in the background of the scene uh, in the film where Brundle's arm wrestling Marty in the bar where he's talking to the girl, you know, it's, oh, it's yeah. the song playing in the background there. But there was a music video released that heavily featured footage from the movie. Uh, and uh, it's a, have you get, do you guys listen to the song? Yeah. I think I sent yeah. you the YouTube. I think I sent you the YouTube music video. Um, it's whatever. It's fine. You know, <laughs> but I cannot imagine it actually being at the end of the movie. It would not, it would have been a like whiplash. <laughs> at the end of this <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, DC even talks about in the, in the film, um, the ending of the movie was such a thing for them anyway, just besides the song, you know, they had like all these alternate endings they shot mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, Gina Davis actually being pregnant or like waking up from a nightmare or giving birth to a butterfly at one point and like all these different things. But um, he said that like every screening they showed it at, you know, just the ending that you have there with her having to finish him off is just so shattering for the That's audience. That's not a good way of phrasing that. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's be honest. We all want Gina Davis to finish us off. Isn't that, isn't that what we want, gentlemen? Uh, yes. I mean, let's let's not let's not beat around the bush. Let's not mince words here. <laughs> but anyway, also well, saying yeah, is well, he I, said I, I, he said at the end, audiences like once that moment happens, everybody checks out anyway. Yeah. It always felt like nobody was interested in anything else that happened beyond that. So it was just like, okay, the movie ends here which he says he admits is like it was the same issue we ran into with dead zone he's like so this movie is the same finishes dead zone yeah uh not a lot of happy endings in uh in cronenberg movies and i think i think it's fitting though the way that it ends because this movie is sort of a chronicle of seth and veronica's relationship Mm -hmm. because the very first scene of the movie opens with him talking to her for the first time Right. It's, it literally opens on Jeff Goldblum's face talking to her for the first time. And then it goes through the whole arc of their relationship. And then it ends at the, the very end of their relationship, which is the death of Seth Brundle. So it, it's really fitting that the movie begins and ends with the beginning and the end of their relationship. Um, it's, it's, it's this, I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk forever about the metaphors and the things it's been compared to, but in that aspect that you're talking about right there, it really does work like uh, a couple going through the whole phase of like, and then even getting old and dying um, towards Mm -hmm. the end. He even talks about just like how bad he wants uh, her to get into the telepod. It's like the old couple is like, I I, I need you to experience this with me. And I want to show you And Like that's the stuff he's thinking about when he's, when he was, first making it and uh i don't know i, I love that that's that's kind of interesting he, he actually had a good quote yeah. i think it was him that i read this at that said uh every every story is a tragedy if you watch it long enough that's a good point yeah <laughs> that's great uh, so when the fly was released at the end of the summer of 1986 it very quickly became Cronenberg's most successful film, both financially and critically. The film was the first of Cronenberg's to have a worldwide distributor with 20th Century Fox. Uh, all of his other films that had, had been released overseas by different companies and they'd been released uh, by here in America. And its success was aided by a clever ad, clamp- ad campaign that utilized the tagline, 
be afraid, be very afraid, which is a, you know, a line from the movie. Yeah. Uh, and, and the idea to use it for the poster, Mel Brooks fully takes credit for that. <laughs> By the way, he says, he says that him, was his idea. Yeah, Cronenberg gives him full credit for it. Says that yeah. that they were on set and like uh, in that scene, Brooks was there and said uh, something about the way Gina Davis was delivering the line. And like said, Mel Brooks was like, "No, she should be afraid. She should be very afraid." And they were like, and and Cronenberg said he was like, "All right, let's use that." Well, yeah, it's good. And and it's such it's become such an iconic, almost like cliche phrase oh, yeah. that most people probably don't know it originated in the fly yeah i true. was wondering if this was the first use this is it was, yeah like, this is where it came from that's such a cliche it did yeah. this start here that's interesting the fly eventually made about 60 million dollars in box office receipts and then in the months following its release the fly won an academy award for best makeup for chris chris Wallace and stephen dupuis it won three saturn awards including best horror film uh, Mark Irwin won the award for cinematography from the Canadian Society of Cinematographers for the year of 1986. Uh, the film appeared on many best of the year lists that year, including Gene Siskel's, who placed it in his top 10. Remember, Siskel and Ebert are not always on board with horror in general, uh, but Cronenberg, they've been very hit or miss with. But in his review of the film, Gene Siskel said, uh, quote, as slimy and as grotesque as some of its special effects become, The Fly is a far superior horror film to the top grossing film in America of late, Aliens. So he's not only wow. praising The Fly, but he's shitting on James Cameron's Aliens in the same sentence. It's uh, something got double billed in a lot of places, like yeah. those movies, which is interesting. I did want to say, too, about the uh, Academy Awards real quick. Uh, Chris Wayless is the first name that's mentioned uh, in the credits, in the end credits. Yeah. Before and, well, at the end credits, before Cronenberg's name, yeah, it says and, "Fly of Creature" or whatever by Chris Wallace, which is pretty yeah, cool. that's awesome. And, and they said they said at after uh, the first screening, the audience cheered when they saw that first credit come up. That's and great. Stuart Cornfield turned to Wallace and said, "You're getting an Oscar." And, <laughs> that's uh, awesome. And it was <laughs> cool. Yeah, and uh, and and Wallace claims that it was probably just because his name was listed first. <laughs> no it's because he did fucking awesome work in the movie honestly he, he deserved that oscar cronenberg uh, says too this was uh this was my first time at the oscars and uh quote it was fun yeah i think he had to sit in the balcony <laughs> since he wasn't actually uh nominated because only nominees get to sit down close right so right he had to sit up in the nosebleed yeah and not yeah i was about to say not even on like the first level i think he said yeah. he was like several levels up or something <laughs> So some other reviews, uh, Patrick Goldstein of the LA Times said, what makes The Fly such a stunning piece of obsessive filmmaking is the way Cronenberg definitely allows us to identify with his monstrous creation. Uh, Richard Corliss, writing for Time Magazine, said, a gross-your-eyes-out horror movie that is also the year's most poignant romance. Uh, so criti critics loved this movie. But, of I mean, there were some detractors here and there. Film critic for the New York Times didn't really like it, but... Uh, the, the detractors were few and far between. But although this film was beloved by critics in 1986, and even though the film features on present-day lists of the greatest horror films, uh, the greatest sci-fi films, hell, just the greatest films of all time, I'm willing to bet that there are some party poopers out there on the internet <laughs> who might have some other opinions, because if the internet has anything, it's fucking opinions. And party poopers, and you know and what poopers. attracts uh, flies. Like, like uh, Amber Hearst, right? poopers yeah like, like, 
that, that that's not going to age well for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> this episode will be out in two weeks and everyone will have forgotten about it. Nobody's ever forgetting about that. Nobody's ever going to forget about the fact that Amber Heard uh, shat in Johnny Depp's bed. It'll be on her fucking tombstone. The power play. <laughs> anyway, did you say somebody needs a nap? Somebody definitely needs a nap. Amber Heard. Um, let's see. Uh, Rob, listen, who hasn't pooped the bed? Well, on purpose? (laughs) Well, not on purpose, purposely. Well, you roll the dice sometimes. You you if you if you're here 10 years from now listening to this episode, maybe this uh, right now that trial is happening, and uh, they had two dogs, and uh, uh, they're little. They're little tiny dogs, like Justin's little tiny dogs, or maybe even my dogs. They're a little bigger. But uh, they were like, are we sure that it wasn't for the dogs? And Johnny Depp the trial was like, that poop wasn't for those dogs. (laughs) 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 There's something along those lines. (laughs) It's like, it's very clear that was not the dog poop. Oh, my God. let's, Let's read some reviews, Gary. All right. Some reviews. Here's one from Rob, who said uh, the title of his review is Gross. But it inspired a classic pud. So what you might be asking? Well, great. I'm glad you asked. Um, he said, I saw this movie once. Never again. David Cronenberg seems to be going out of his way in this movie to gross out the audience. The problem is he mistakes revulsion for genuine horror and suspense. The movie has one redeeming value and inspired what has to be the all-time classic worst pun in the history of the world. And it came from Bob Hope. And this is a quote, it says, hey, did you see the new movie, The Fly? Jeff Goldblum plays a mad scientist who accidentally turns himself into a giant fly. My favorite scene in the movie is when the scientist and his wife are sitting in a restaurant. The scientist drinks a bowl of soup and his wife turns to the waiter and says, waiter, there's a fly or there's a soup in my fly. That's what it is. That's uh, wow. Yeah, that's not even a good pun. (laughs) Thanks, Bob Hope. (laughs) This person is named uh-oh uh it says uh didn't need the bedroom scene nor the later language stop watching <laughs> written by my grandmother <laughs> see you at church on sunday <laughs> uh let's see uh this is Nevea who says and it looks like this is where i draw the line with Cronenberg. this shit is gross i almost made it all the way through but the last 10 minutes jesus christ <laughs> her name was Nevea. that's heaven Nevea. backwards Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, here's one for Rihanna. What the fuck? I want him to vomit acid on my memory so I can erase the fact that I watched this in my mind. <laughs> Liv says, how the fuck does this have such high marks on here? Bad script, bad acting, bad plot. Also, just gross. Also, the politics are so confusing. Is this pro-abortion? It's too bad to make any other statement. I feel like a lot of these are just talking, uh, and a lot of the reviews I found were a lot of people just were giving it poor ratings because they thought it was gross, and that was pretty much their only argument against it. <laughs> yeah. it was well, I was gross. gonna say, did it, Justin? Did you uh, come across any instances of like pro-lifers being all upset there, or there was, heard I, about it? I, I yeah, I, I didn't, but I didn't look that that hard. Mm. Uh, half star here. Uh, this is from Allison. People need to stop rating this movie so high. She literally fucks a fly. <laughs> Technically, it's half a fly. Well, so. That's true. 
Annie says, no movie has ever made me as mad as this movie made me. I'm mad. <laughs> well, all right. I loved that one. <laughs> I didn't get this one at all. This is from Chayton Bobby. Ha ha, get it? It's about AIDS and how queer men with AIDS are literal monsters. Ha ha, so smart, so clever. No, that's not what it's about at all. He's not no. a queer character. I, I did not get that. I was like, yeah. what did this person watch? Yeah, what movie are you watching? <laughs> uh, let's see. Toby says this movie exists only for shock value. It capitalizes off of awful people. We were forced to watch this at camp, and it was the worst two hours of my life. They all wanted to make it super deep and metaphorical, but it's not. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is the godfather compared to this movie. I was physically uncomfy <laughs> because not only was it gross, it was bad. Listen, I like Fallen Kingdom, and I still say that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> also, what camp are you going to where you get to watch The Fly? I went to church camp as a kid. We sure didn't get to watch this. We had to watch salty videos and shit. <laughs> this one is from a guy named Brett, and I had to read this one just because I feel like this is a person who wants to be a smarmy film critic, and this one made it's me bad at it. Kind of, I'm, I'm not, I'm a non-violent person, but I wanted to choke him. Um, <laughs> well, folks, here I am, dragged back into the world of internet movie reviews by none other than Mr. Crone and Berg themselves. I personally could not get into this movie as it just wasn't very believable. Perhaps they should have taken a note from Chris, the T in parentheses, they did like Christ, yeah. from Christ Nolan's The Batman Movies and grounded this movie in reality instead of a made up La La Land, uh, a 2016, where Jeff Goldblum turns into a freaking insect and he still fucks. Chalk it up to me being an old soul yearning for the days of real blockbusters, but these new gore porn flicks just don't scratch my itch. My conclusion? Wait for this to come out on your local red box and save yourself a trip to the cinema. Otherwise, you'll be the flying to the customer service desk for the old five-figure discount. A refund. First of all, was that Gene Shallot? <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> what reality is this person living in where, one, this movie is playing in a cinema and then coming soon to Redbox, but in that same reality, the films of Christopher Nolan also exist? <laughs> That's crazy, right? I and also, this. anyone who calls Christopher Nolan Christ Nolan, go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and I say that as a fan of most of Christopher Nolan's films, but people who worship him are the absolute worst type of film nerds. <laughs> and if you're one of those people, fucking at me. I don't care. <laughs> uh, and finally, Fight Club's probably your favorite movie. Probably. And I uh, like Fight Club. But guys who say Fight Club's their favorite movie uh, are usually okay. pretty yeah, awful. fair enough. And don't and and they a lot of guys who this is for a fight club episode. A lot of guys who say Fight Club's their favorite movie uh, don't they know idolize, what Fight Club's they actually idolize about. Tyler Durden and they don't know what the movie's actually about. Yes. Right. <laughs> and they wear tap out t-shirts. Yes. Mm. Uh, no. Uh Craig here wrote the review, the final review for today. And this is for Justin mostly. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. First slide here, especially. Took too long for him to turn into a fly. And even then, he didn't grow wings or eat any poo. <laughs> there was a lot of unnecessary sex scenes, which made for uncomfortable watching. 
This was largely because I watched it with my parents and an old man that I had never met before. I'm not even sure if my parents knew him or even why he was allowed to come into our lounge room, but he did make numerous mother-in-law jokes throughout, which always go well with me. <laughs> it was a plot twist. It was David Cronenberg. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. Weird one. But that one did reference eating poo. So. Yeah, at least one of them. I thought there'd be more, but you know. <laughs> uh, um, well, despite what these people on the internet have to say, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the the fly is largely considered David Cronenberg's masterpiece. Uh, he had made great films before the fly. We've talked about we've talked about him here. Uh, he'll make great films after the fly. Some of his best movies will come after the fly, but this movie really feels like the culmination of his entire career up until this point. Uh, when David Cronenberg dies one day, the fly will be the first movie that gets mentioned in his obituaries. Hell the, the headlines you read on the internet will say David Cronenberg, director of the fly dies at age 107. Hopefully, you know, he's <laughs> still making movies. Hopefully he's still around for a while. Yeah, uh, but this is a series. We've been doing this series. This is seven episodes so 14 weeks now. We've been working on this series of David Cronenberg movies, and it's all about his body horror movies. Mm-hmm. And even though his body horror phase only lasted for the first 10 years or so of his career, it's still the subgenre that he's most often associated with. Uh, any discussion on body horror in general begins with David Cronenberg and the and usually begins with The Fly. Even though he did body horrors uh, before this, The Fly really is like the ultimate body horror film. Oh, uh, yeah. Like when you go, when somebody tells you you're going to see a body horror film, this is what you picture, you know? It's an hour and a half of acid vomit and oozing, peeling flesh, body parts falling off, uh, skin cracking to reveal some new horror underneath. Uh, essentially, it's often about the flesh rebelling against its host transforming into something unrecognizable and i the, the the fly if you looked up body horror in the dictionary if you have a dictionary uh the fly <laughs> would like be the picture that you see oh yeah absolutely uh, and the fly is like a lot of those reviews mentioned the fly is a gross movie it's, it's part of what i love about it honestly it's a gross movie uh but as we all know by now especially after doing all of these movies in a row like this Cronenberg's never going to be satisfied with just grossing us out. That's not his thing. Uh, he, he, he even, you know, has said multiple times and we've mentioned it almost on every episode, probably that he never set out to be a horror movie director. Uh, he's not out to gross people out. He's not out to make a movie. That's just gore. Uh, he's always got ulterior motives, other things to say. Uh, he's using the disgust that the audience feels when they watch Seth Brundle decay as a way of reminding them, reminding the audience that not only of our own mortality, but reminding us of just how gross and weird the human body is and how mm. at any moment this stupid flesh suit that we're walking around in can turn on us. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> at the time of its release, uh, there were a lot of like think pieces, you know, a lot of the reviews and things like that that talked about the fly being a metaphor for AIDS. Uh, Gary, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, and it's understandable why people would would think that because at the time that this movie was released in 1986 uh it, we were at the height of the aids epidemic uh this was front page news so it would make sense for someone to make a movie like this be a metaphor for aids but cronenberg you know he accepts that interpretation but he's pretty specific that 
making a movie about age was never his intent. He he often says that he is not a topical filmmaker. He's never going to make a movie that's about the times, you know, mm. uh, when making the fly, his intent was to make it not a metaphor about age specifically, but a metaphor about aging and disease in a more general sense. Cronenberg uh, says that uh, it's about quote, the original sin, the knowledge of your own finite existence. Yeah. Uh, another quote from him is that the, this movie is about the inevitability of deterioration and death finding the weird thing on your body that isn't right or isn't supposed to be there. Uh, it's about aging or disease and not AIDS specifically. This is, I've experienced things that I was just anticipating at the time. And it disturbs me even now watching it back. It's more, it's about mortality. Um, yeah. So yeah, he's talking about, I think in, in the commentary, he goes into like, you know, like you're like, even just the thought of like it being scary that like you're, rubbing your arm one day and you find a lot that isn't the same place that it was, or, you know, it wasn't there before. And now it is yeah. there. And it's even like, even if it's like minor or just a bump, it's like something's different and you know, it's yeah. wrong. And you know, it's just that kind of feeling that you get. Yeah. Bodies yeah. are stupid. Human bodies are dumb. They're, <laughs> they're poorly designed pieces of meat that, uh, you know, your hair starts falling out. Things start, you know, sagging and fall and getting weird. Like bodies are gross. And that's really what he's doing here is, is confronting you with the fact that like you're in a piece of meat that's been decaying essentially since the moment you were born, you yeah. know, uh, which is a huge subject, obviously. And it's one that's worthy of discussion. And it's one that is often the subject of discussions surrounding David Cronenberg's body horror and especially regarding the fly. Uh, but there are other aspects of the fly. One, one specifically that ties into the themes of death that gets discussed a little bit less. And what it is, is that the fly is, and this is even according to Cronenberg, it's a love story. It's a tragic love story. Uh, it's a romance that ends in a pretty depressing way. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that too, because he, he, he talks about uh, that, you know, this story is so sad. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that one quote earlier, but he was saying that if this was a straight drama, this is not a movie that would get made. Uh, too Nobody attractive, would want to see it. Yeah, he's like, two attractive, <laughs> eccentric people who fall in love, they deteriorate, one helps the other commit suicide. He was like, that's <laughs> yeah. too much of a bummer. He was yeah. like, this movie is protected by the trappings of the genre. Yeah, uh, that's he's how, absolutely right. That's how we're able to have it. Yeah, but it is a it is a very human story. I mean, I think it's the most human of Cronenberg's films that we've discussed so far. Uh, up till now, I would have probably said that was the, the Dead Zone because that was the most character based. I think of the ones we've talked about. Uh, yeah. The Fly, though, the Fly almost feels like Cronenberg took the humanity of the Dead Zone and fused it, put it in a telepod with <laughs> like Videodrome, with the gross fleshy effects of Videodrome, and yeah. came out with something that's better than both of those. You know, yeah, that, uh, that that's fair. And we we discussed on that Dead Zone episode that that is a guy. It, it's a it's a story about a guy with psychic powers. Yes, but it's also really about a guy coming to grips with how his body and his mind are changing. Uh, and he's sort of doing the same thing here. The fly is about a guy who's turning into a giant fly hybrid thing, but it's really about Seth Rundle's journey and how his his body and his mind are being transformed. But it's also about, and this is something that the Dead Zone didn't really have a chance to, to latch on to, it's also about how that journey affects those around him 
specifically Veronica, Ronnie, because uh, that the, the dead zone couldn't do that because Sarah was kind of out of Johnny's life for yeah. long stretches of that. And she moved on with her life and he was kind of having to deal with it on his own. Here we're seeing it almost through Ronnie's eyes. It so, is oh, sad. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> while Seth is going through this transformation, changing from one self to another, Cronenberg also explores what it's like to be in love with someone who's slowly becoming someone that you don't recognize. Uh, and that's, it's, mm. it, it, this is, this is all going to sound very depressing. <laughs> as, I, <laughs> as I discuss this, uh, but everyone's been through that situation, you know, and I'm not even talking about watching somebody die. That's part of this as well, but I'm talking about where you're in a relationship with someone, be it friends, romantic partners, whatever, just somebody, you know, who, if you're friends with them long enough, or you're in a relationship with them long enough, you can at some point realize that they're no longer the person that you initially connected with. They've changed either via, via you know, the circumstances beyond their control or by poor decisions that they've made. You know, people yeah. change. And sometimes it's hard to see somebody change into somebody that you are no longer, that you can no longer connect with. And you kind of see that with Seth and Ronnie's relationship because uh, Gary, you touched on this earlier, but Cronenberg gives us this entire kind of romantic arc with them, right? You see them meet cute at the beginning of the movie. You see them fall in love. Uh, then they, things kind of take a turn. Uh, you see Seth, he gets kind of jealous when he finds out the status is still in Ronnie's life, even though they're not in a relationship. He gets jealous and that jealousy causes him to make a very bad decision. Mm, <laughs> and then after he's fused you know, genetically with the fly, we also see hints at domestic abuse. You know, they get in this argument where he, he punches the wall like a fucking true Kyle. Uh, and then, <laughs> yeah, of course, there's the obvious physical transformation, but he's also changing mentally because he is slowly mentally becoming more insect-like, which is more driven by survival. Yeah. And he even says that in that great speech about insect politics, one of the best scenes in the movie, I think, where he he tells her he knows that this is happening. And he tells her to stay away or you're going to get hurt because he's turning into this thing who has no regards really for her feelings anymore. Now, you take that same concept and you apply it to someone who's changing before your eyes due to something that's not their fault, be it cancer, AIDS, whatever disease you want to substitute in or just getting old and decaying yeah. you know you're watching that happen to somebody and that's that's a that's fucking heavy yeah. <laughs> this, movie, this movie is is has no right to be this heavy uh with with some of these things and like even the idea of like survival like of the of the you know we're talking about it from roddy's perspective but even from uh from seth's perspective like the scene got me again this time on on the rooftop when he captures her with a cool scene by the way it's almost like a universal horror movie where he's like yeah, carrying her. very yeah uh, but uh where he's like talking to her about the baby like don't get rid of the baby like that's the last part of me like that's the that's the only thing i have left and you know i know people are like trying to spin this into like a uh anti-abortion or what whatever they're trying to do in some of these reviews i read but but just that idea like that's a that feels like a genuine emotion like this guy's like saying like don't he knows his time is limited and this is all yeah. he has like left to leave. Yeah. This, this is earth. all I'm leaving behind. Like, yeah. don't get rid of this for me. And uh, I don't know. It's just sad. The, the it's whole very sad. Like, it's a, yeah. it's a sad movie. Like I said before, it is a tragedy. 
it's a tragedy with a lot of cool like pus and goop and shit but it is a tragedy ultimately <laughs> it made me um, think of like everything that he went through uh you know with his divorce and all that yeah, you know, it's yeah. like I, that's there's got to be some residual. It's uh, possible, yeah. Stuff coming up in the making of the fly, you know, watching somebody change into something you don't recognize. And the, the weird part with Cronenberg too is, I mean, even after this, and especially after, uh, you know, I, we're not going to get into all these, but you know, I was I was reading a few things that talked about even after Naked Lunch, like he 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 strays away from his own original stuff. And he mostly sticks to literary adaptations, except for, and we kind of talked about this, except for like existence. existence um, yeah. But, uh, you know, he still, he still tries to stick to like some of the themes that he's really focused on. Like uh, some of the things that stay true, like sex and death, uh, the body and mind connection, like just that the, uh, I don't know, just the way that the, the mind can do so many different things and create so many different realities for you but then you're also your body is just this sack of flesh you know that like yeah um and and i don't know it's just like where your mind can take you versus like what your i don't know like your worldly self is trying to do i don't know well kronberg has has also said i I watched a really great interview i didn't watch the whole thing because it was about an hour and a half long on youtube called kronenberg on kronenberg um series of interviews with him but he he himself has said that his run of body horror movies is really about the nature of identity. Uh, now, this is a guy, David Cronenberg. He is an avowed atheist, uh, very scientifically driven, does not believe in, um, in the afterlife or in God or anything like that. So he's not trying to find his identity through any of that stuff. He's trying to find it through a more logical mean. Uh, this is a guy who, you know, he can't brush away this stuff with any sort of religious mumbo jumbo. So he's trying to come to terms with the question of who am I through his films and, and exploring that and what happens when, like, what is, what is yourself once you begin this sort of transformation, you know, like is at what point does Seth Brundle stop being Seth Brundle mm. in this movie? At what point does he fully the, the fly? This is something that, that, you know, runs through all of his work i mean it's it's most as far as the movies we've talked about here it's it's pretty clear but even you know eastern promises and and a history of violence if you've seen those movies not to a uh, slight spoiler here but a history of violence if you're a, a hitman who creates a new life in a small town are you still a killer are you still that guy yeah. eastern promises if you're a cop who goes undercover with the russian mob at what point you just become a fucking mobster. Yeah. Right. This is a, this is a, a something that he explores throughout his entire filmography. And it makes me kind of sad that we're ending our talk about his filmography right. here, but, but this is all stuff that we'll get to talk about later on down the line. But as far as like the themes of this film, it, when you look, we talk about a lot of genre movies on the show. I mean, this is, that's what we do. So that inevitably means we're going to talk about a lot of horror movies. And I think that confronting death, is arguably at the heart of the entire horror genre. Uh, But what The Fly does differently is it shows us what it's like to confront not your own death, but the death of someone that you care about. Because Mm. when you die, you don't experience your own death. You might, you you experience everything leading up to your death, but once you're dead, it's done. You're it's over. You're like that. You don't experience the aftermath of that. Right. Right. But what Ronnie is going through when, 
when someone you care about dies, you are the one experiencing that. You're experiencing their death. That's what Ronnie's going through here. You're she's experiencing watching someone she knows die, and and she's gonna have to deal with the reality of him no longer being there. And mm-hmm. horror movies don't usually deal with that kind of stuff. Usually, somebody's done and they're gone. Like you know, somebody gets killed by Leatherface, it's over in an instant. You know, this is a slow death through an hour and a half of movie, basically. Uh, yeah. I think Franklin watching, went through a lot, like just thinking about all his friends dying in Texas. Franklin. Pizza. Franklin was an asshole. But you're watching Ronnie. She's watching Seth Brundle slowly fade away until there's nothing left of the man that she fell in love with at the beginning of the movie. And, and let's get it out of the way. Jeff Goldblum is incredible in this movie. His performance is a big part of what makes it work. Uh, yeah. the, his, and his performance combined with the work from Chris Wallace is often the focal point of discussions on this movie but what i don't think gets mentioned enough is just how good gina davis is in this movie because she's really great she really is the emotional center of this movie she's the only character who's sympathetic from beginning to end seth brundle isn't and stathis borns neither one of them are sympathetic from beginning to end in this movie uh so it's through her eyes that we see the slow death of seth brundle so we have to care about her enough to because she cares about him so if Gina Davis, if whoever plays Ronnie, if they don't work, the whole movie would fall apart, Yeah, I think. So I, I think that as good and as, as important as Jeff Goldblum is in this movie, I think Gina Davis is the emotional heart of the fly. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's an accurate assessment. You know, It also looking... makes it that much sadder at the end when she has to put yeah. him out of his misery. Yeah. Because he's begging her to. You it know? is not I mean, okay What a horrible fucking kind of... thing. I don't know. I'm getting soft in my old age, but it is not okay that I almost get like a little tear in my eye having to see, you know, him put the gun up to his head. It's sad. It is sad, you know, and it's (laughs) like a fucking monster putting the gun up to his head. Yeah. And it should be sad because, but how many other horror movie filmmakers could pull that off? Not many. That's yeah. You know, to make you actually care about this creature. That's hideous and disgusting. You know, (laughs) right. Uh, It's, it's a really an achievement, which I think is why this is largely considered by most, I'd say most people who have seen the most of David Cronenberg's movies, this is usually considered the best and their favorite. And I think that's a large part of it. So far, this is the best. Uh, yeah, I mean, in I my opinion, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's 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 definitely the peak of Cronenberg right now. I mean, I think it's my about. favorite overall. Uh, I think History of Violence is way up there for me. Uh, I really love that movie, but I don't think I think it's hard to, I think it's hard to beat The Fly. This just hit so know. many so many points, and then yeah. you know, I almost even hate to mention it just because of how deep you just got with like emotionally. But um, you know, he he talks a lot too about just that as he's reflecting on the movie about he also thinks a lot about just people in general i guess this kind of connects because he's saying like it's in our nature to question everything or to like change over time and and these so we're always changing things or trying to adapt or be better whatever and every decision we make will cause some good some bad and uh and so that's just the nature of life. Uh, you you mentioned earlier. I mean, just uh, I'm trying to figure out how to round this off. But you mentioned earlier, even like uh, him being an atheist and that sort of thing. He's always trying to figure things out. He, he talks about as a junior entomologist, 
there's the line that he uses in the thing about uh have you ever heard of insect politics you know that's another big yeah. line from this movie mm-hmm. he was saying it was just kind of a little joke for himself but because he's actually interested in insects and he talks about like ants for instance that they live in a society they're not human ants are clearly not humans and he talks about but they have a like a weird division of labor between their people they will go and attack other colonies at seemingly random intervals like they decide that these people have to go they'll take slaves they like capture queens and milk them and like there's like there's a weird thing about ants they're not humans but they do these things so like what separate like what is what are what is their process what is their thought uh, so there's like that side of it, which interests him about the insect side of things. And then there's also the thing he's talking about with like, uh, he, he talks about with DNA that, that interests him. And he's like, we've opened this Pandora's box of DNA and he's like, it'll never be closed. And this is always in our nature to question everything, change everything. And, and it'll create a good, it'll create bad. And he's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. He's like, most of my characters come to uh, terrible ends. He's like, that's just kind of, he's like, but, you know that i make drama and yeah. that's what drama is he's like conflict mm-hmm. is the nature of drama so here we are he's like that's that's what makes movies so he's like it's not all bad he's like things go good but you know some when things go wrong that's when you understand how important it is for things to go right and so it's uh i don't know it's just interesting i'm, I'm not even saying like a real point here i don't think <laughs> i think i'm just saying <laughs> things cronenberg was talking about that i'm like yeah, yeah oh this is this is well, it just it just goes to show you just how thoughtful and intelligent David Cronenberg really is. He really is. Um, I, I was thinking when I, as I was writing my notes on this that the main character in dies in almost every one of these movies that we've talked about. Yeah. I mean, except for the Brood. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, and even the then, it's not like a happy ending because the daughter is like clearly the thing is passed on. Yeah, yeah. So it's still a, it's still a bummer of an ending. <laughs> yeah. But like, so and I mean, I guess that's what he's saying when he's talking about too. He's just like, I make drama. You know, that's that's movies. That's what I do. I yeah. you know, that's that's just how it has to be. But yeah. like, I can't just make like the super super happy. And, like we we cured all the disease. And that's not his thing. Good yep (laughs) so we forgot to do this on our dead zone episode guys but let's let's uh, talk about further viewing what do you what the hell do you pair with the fly what's going to compare to this honestly uh anything at all do you guys have any any uh any movies you would pair as a double feature with this one the wolf man from 2010 uh oh wait the del toro version yeah yeah i think i I think the i mostly because of the intensity in that movie, I mean, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of similar themes of, you know, uh, struggle with identity um, in this one. You know, there's the element of it being sort of handed down genetically um, and, uh, you know, an extreme, an extreme change, an extreme uh, identity crisis uh, brought about with some wonderful digital and practical special effects. Um, yeah, that's how I'd go. Okay. All right. That's a, that, uh, I, I don't remember much about that movie. I, I'd like to revisit it. I, I just always kind of lament the the uh, the way Rick Baker's effects kind of got cut out of that movie. Yeah, you know, I, w- I would love to see the original version of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I can't because I don't have 
you know, the ability to, <laughs> to jump into a different timeline. But I mean, you uh, know, if you if you gotta if you gotta hang a movie like that on some actors, you know, Benicio del Toro, oh, he's great, Anthony Hopkins, Hugo mm-hmm. Weaving, Emily Blunt, those are all <laughs> really yeah. solid, really solid uh, choices. Yeah, I agree. What yeah. do you think, Gary? Oh, I got two good ones. Um, easily, uh, and these are two movies I like very much. And I, I even found our reference one of these in the last one, uh, which is Hellraiser. Yeah. Uh, because I thought I said in, in our last time we recorded about the fly, I thought it was so interesting because I watched it this time. I was like, David Cronenberg should make a Hellraiser movie. And I've decided that Hellraiser is for some reason, the movie that I think all people should make. I don't know why. <laughs> Cause I said it about the Wachowskis too. Yeah. It just feels like Cronenberg and the Wachowskis could both make a really cool Hellraiser movie, but Hellraiser deals with this kind of thing. I mean, it is sense. Like there, people are playing with stuff beyond the veil, and they're like, I don't know. I feel like there's an experimentation kind of thing. Like people are interested in. It's very much about death. Yeah, and then they Mm. play too far into it, and they awaken something that really fucks them up. And uh, and so I like that one, but but probably more closely, I would go Stuart Gordon, and I would say From Beyond actually is what I would do. uh, Yeah, because it's about science. And they're playing around and they can, and I, I said pierce the veil already, but they kind of do that to like perceive other realities or, other, or, or like other dimensions, I should say. Yeah. And, uh, and that causes some real fucked up body horror uh, in that movie. And uh, anyway, From Beyond is probably a, a, an amazing double feature for this one, I would think. Uh, from beyond is actually one of the first ones i thought of so i'm glad i'm <laughs> i'm glad we're on the same page here uh i love that movie uh a big fan of it but yeah it, it is about science going too far and the consequences uh of that now the the other one since you picked that one the other one i had on my list was uh, tetsuo the iron man i don't know if you guys are familiar Ooh. with a senja senya sukamoto it's a japanese filmmaker it's a very like cool cyberpunk body horror movie from the late 80s 1989 i believe uh but it is like it is i don't know without looking into it how much that it was influenced by cronenberg but it feels like the type of body horror that came as the result of an underground filmmaker getting really into david cronenberg Uh, Mm. but instead of a guy being fused with like a another biological being like a fly it's about a guy slowly becoming um metal essentially slowly becoming uh, a machine and it is rad it is one of my it's honestly one of my favorite movies (laughs) it's it's such a cool movie it is just like it's super it's black and white super grainy very almost uh eraserhead-esque in its cinematography very very low budget underground but um just just a magnetic film and it's very short it's an hour and 10 minutes long or something uh, and it's very very fast paced the whole time but it it doesn't deal thematically with a lot of the the deeper stuff that cronenberg does but just as a an extension of what body horror can be tetsuo mm-hmm. the iron man is is pretty incredible and it's also kind of a love story it's kind of not as overt as the fly but it's there So I would highly recommend watching Tetsuo the Iron Man. It's a rad movie. Watching the fly again. I don't, I don't know why it's not more popular as a play. 
like a stage play. Like it really it's only could. three people. Yeah. Yeah. It's like literally other than the fact people. that doing the effects would be very difficult on stage. Yeah. But if you watch like the YouTube thing, I mean, they they have ways of handling it and it's yeah. not it's not too they, they don't obviously. They don't go as crazy as David Cronenberg sure. with yeah, their yeah, effects, so it's a, uh, you know, so you, you you have to downplay those a little bit more and yeah, go with your yeah. imagination, as you do with stage productions in general. In general, so the fly, of course, is not the end of the road for David Cronenberg. Uh, this is he's still got decades of filmmaking ahead of him at this point, but it was the end of an era. Uh, while movies like Crash and Existence have some pretty overt references to the flesh, to bodies, uh, this is really the last true body horror film that he ever made. Although uh, the trailers for Crimes of the Future just came out, uh, his his I don't know if it's even a remake of his original film or if he just took concepts of it. But if you've watched those trailers, uh, if there are any indication, he might be returning to the body horror realm for this uh, late stage film in his career. Cause it, it looks feels like he's playing with some stuff. It yeah. looks gnarly, man. <laughs> it looks really cool. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited for it. It'll be out um, just in a few weeks, actually from the time of this recording, we should at Maybe. least do an episode on that. We might do something. a little bonus review on it or something and then do a devote a full episode to it down the line. We'll see. But this also wasn't the end of the fly as a franchise. Uh, in 1989, a sequel to The Fly was released, uh, cleverly titled The Fly 2. Cronenberg uh, had no desire to return to the franchise. He's a guy who says that he doesn't like to do sequels. Uh, he's always said that. So the sequel is actually directed by Chris Wallace, making his directorial debut. Uh, the film opens with Ronnie dying during childbirth, during which she gives birth to a larval sack, the result of her pregnancy from the first film. Uh, Gina Davis doesn't return because she didn't want to play a character that dies in the first two minutes and gets no character development at all. So she <laughs> said no to this. And uh, she was replaced by a Canadian actress named Saffron Henderson. Uh, in fact, the only person from the first film to appear other than in archive footage of Jeff Goldblum is John Getz reprising his role as Stathis, only this time with a clearly fake beard on his face. Ooh. Seth and Ronnie's son in that, that who is also named Martin Brundle. Remember that was the, the uh, that was the inspiration for Seth Brundle, Martin Brundle, the race car driver. So they actually just went and named him Martin uh, oh. in this film. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. So he's inherited his father's fly genes and he grows at like this accelerated rate. Like he, he grows very, very quickly. Once he reaches adulthood in, or he looks like an adult in the film, he's, he's only five years old, uh, which makes the sex scenes very uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> with the, uh, I can't remember her name in that, but I was watching that. I was like, he is a five-year-old man. I know he looks uh, like he's not 30. more uncomfortable than big. Right. No, no, age. it's on the same level. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> it's on the same level. Uh, but he, and he also like, He's incredibly intelligent and incredibly like emotionally advanced. Uh, it's a cool concept, you know. And of course, throughout by the end of the film, his dormant fly human hybrid genes have come out, and he becomes a big fly creature by the end. So, which looks very different from the fly from the original film, but whatever. Uh, the main role was offered to Keanu Reeves initially, who turned it down Ooh. because he didn't like the script. Uh, Eric Stoltz eventually ended up playing the part. The film was co-written by Frank Darabont very early on in his career. Uh, and the sculptor for the film's effects was Tom Sullivan, who's most well-known for his work on Sam Raimi's Evil Dead films. So a lot of connections on this dumb little sequel. Uh, did you did you watch it, Gary? Do you watch the film? You were too? about to ask that. No, I just I never got enough time to get to the, the sequel to The Fly. It's, it's worth watching. It is nowhere near as good as the original film. Not even. 
I'm remotely. I'm in this deep. I mean, I'm gonna watch it. But, but it's I worth just... it's worth watching if only for the effects because it is what it lacks in the gravitas and the character development of the first film it makes up for in goop and pus and gross things yeah Uh, the effects are really gross and really fun and did you watch it todd i've seen it before again i think it got i think they would do uh the back-to-back showings on that sunday afternoon it has one of my favorite uh sort of creepy horror movie moments of the girl comes in to the room wherever he's at and it's like Oh my God, you're getting worse. And he's, he's, it's silhouetted and you can see like a bunch of, yeah, yeah, the bumps and stuff like that. And just really low, just, I'm getting better. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, good. Oh shit. And Eric Stoltz is admittedly no Jeff Goldblum. Right. Uh, right. (laughs) It's fine, but he is no Jeff Goldblum. He's, there's a reason that Eric Stoltz has never successfully. This is why people have daddy complexes, Justin. Listen, none of us are, none of us compared to Jeff Goldblum. Let's be real. This man is is incredibly uh, intelligent. He is tall and handsome and eccentric in a way that is very appealing. And he's an incredible piano player. Yes, he is. He is. He's got an album. He's had to live up to Jeff Goldblum in this movie and Michael J. Fox (laughs) and Back to the Future. Well, I mean, he was there before Michael J. Fox and they fired him because he wasn't good enough. (laughs) 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 But uh, so The Fly 2 was fairly successful at the box office, but it was decidedly less popular with the critics. It was not not a critical darling like the first film. Uh, Wayless has only directed one other narrative film. I was curious if he had directed anything else after this. He's done, he did like an episode of um, you know, Tales from the Crypt. He did a movie like in 2020 that's just about him. It's about making the gremlins, basically. It's a, he made a documentary about himself. But the only other narrative film that he made was in 1992. He directed a movie called The Vagrant. I'd never heard of it uh, until I started doing research for this. It stars Bill Paxton. as uh, And this is word for word from the IMDb plot synopsis. As a businessman who buys a house but has a hard time trying to get rid of its previous tenant, a dirty bum. <laughs> the, the film, that's the, that's, the, that's the official synopsis. They call this guy a dirty bum. Uh, okay. The film co-stars Michael Ironside uh, and Marshall Bell uh, as the vagrant. Uh, Marshall Bell was the general in Starship Troopers, uh, uh-huh. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's two, two, two Starship Troopers guys in this movie. And it was written by Richard Jeffries, who probably hasn't written anything else you've ever heard of. But Richard Jeffries was attached briefly to an alternate sequel to The Fly in the 90s. So this was like way before we were doing stuff like Halloween uh, 2018 that ignores all the previous sequels. They were trying to do that in the 90s with The Fly. Uh, Richard Jeffries was writing it. It was going to be called Flies, F-L-I-E-S, Flies. And it was set to be directed by Rennie Harlan, who was Gina Davis's husband at the time. Yeah. Uh, Davis was going to reprise her role as Veronica. And in the story, she gives birth to twin boys, hence Flies, sequ- uh, you know, plural. Uh, but she survives uh, the, the ordeal in this one. So that ne- I don't know what ever happened to that or why it fell apart. I couldn't find any more information on the development of it. It was just one of those probably development hell things, movies that will never be. But I thought that was very interesting <laughs> that, that, that that was a thing at all. And then in 2015, IDW Publishing released a five-issue miniseries called The Fly Outbreak that essentially functions as The Fly Part 3. It features Martin Brundle, the Eric Stoltz character, uh, who... You know, at the end of The Fly 2, spoiler, 
but he infects an I, I won't get specific but he passes the fly thing the genetic thing onto another character okay so in the comic he's trying to um fix that and inadvertently causes a transgenetic outbreak so he causes like a pandemic essentially of people's genes changing sounds pretty cool i haven't read it but wow. i, I want to look it up now i yeah. want to i want to try to hunt it down uh there have also been talks of remakes and reboots over the years like there always are when a movie is as popular as the fly is a director named todd lincoln was attached to a possible remake in the early 2000s that never happened uh in 2009 or so david cronenberg himself was attached to what he called a, the, the initial rumor said it was a remake, but he clarified that, saying it was a sort of sequel to The Fly. He called it, quote, more of a strange lateral, let's say oblique sequel, than it is a true sequel. He called it a meditation on flyness, which is not about looking fly, I don't think. But I'm not really <laughs> sure, sure what it does, does mean. But uh, Gary mentioned this before, he did eventually return to the fly. He, he and Howard Shore collaborated on an opera based on the film. It premiered in Paris in July of 2008. Uh, the libretto for the, the opera was written by a guy named David Henry Huang, who also wrote the play M. Butterfly, which Cronenberg adapted into a film in 1993. So he's working with this guy again on a remake of the fly uh, or a, an opera version of the fly, I guess I should say, uh, which... I'm going to have to go watch that YouTube video, Gary, because I'm very curious as to how they pulled that off. Uh, so uh, it, it premiered in Paris, but then I think it showed it, it ran in Los Angeles for a little while after that, like a few months later. Nash and Kutcher was in the butterfly effect. Oh, how about that? Yeah. You never seen <laughs> what about that. the Mothman prophecies? Richard Gere. Also a sequel to The Fly. <laughs> it's part of the, the Fly cinematic universe. Yeah. <laughs> also a bug's life. Weird. It's a weird. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> so the fly, as we said, was a, a big success financially, critically. It was, it was good. So after the fly Cronenberg was, he, he was at this position where he could pretty much get whatever he wanted made, you know, cause he, he had that power at this point. And what he did was he used that power to get a film made that he'd been trying to get off the ground for like two decades at this point, almost two decades, well over a decade and a half. That movie was Dead Ringers, starring Jeremy Irons. Uh, but that's a story for another day. For now, we're done with David Cronenberg. We're leaving the world of David Cronenberg. Don't worry, we do we we do plan to revisit his filmography in the future. It makes you sad when you get off. this far into somebody's life and then you just like leave them. Like just leave this. them. It's, it's tragic. But we are going to pick up where we left off. Uh, but for now, we're going to move on to something else. Uh, our, for our next series, we're not moving that far geographically because we're following up one Canadian director for another. Uh, our next series is going to be on James Cameron, and we're covering everything. We're not because he doesn't have nearly as many movies as David Cronenberg. So like we did on the Wachowskis, we're going from the beginning. Well, I say that we're not doing Piranha 2. We're starting with the Terminator. <laughs> we're not, we'll, we'll talk about Piranha 2, but we're not going to do a whole episode on Piranha 2. And we're going all the way up to Avatar. Uh, but before we get to James Cameron, we're going to play a little game of Cinema Shock Roulette. Uh, if you guys yeah. remember, before we did our Cronenberg series, we did our first episode of Cinema Shock Roulette. This is something we're going to do in between long-form series where we pick a movie at totally at random. And what we've done, what I've done is, I, if, if you follow me on Letterboxd, 
Uh, I've got a list called Cinema Shock Roulette. It's got a list of films. I think I'm out of like 104, 105 movies on that list right now. So we'll never get to all of them unless we're doing this show for 50 years. We'll never get to all of them. So it is going to be, it it is incredibly random. And we're just going to spin the wheel, pick one at random. And whatever that is, is what our next episode is going to be on. And then we're going to jump into James Cameron for the remainder of the summer of 2022. Basically, that'll take us all the way into late August. I think if I'm, if I remember correctly. So let me tell you something that's making me uncomfortable about the James Cameron series. I'll just put it out there right now. I've never seen Titanic. I know. And my, one of my, one thing thing i am most excited about for the series is gary finally watching titanic i'm like forced into it actively avoiding it for almost (laughs) for 25 years at this point it's it's rare rare that i've seen the movie listen everybody's seen titanic except for right right (laughs) and gary has specifically avoided it for two and a half decades of his life (laughs) <laughs> and now he's going to finally watch it. Honestly, that was one of my main reasons for wanting to do James Cameron. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> forcing Gary me into Titanic. watching Titanic. <laughs> oh, God. Listen, internet, in the please don't spoil now. Titanic for please Gary. Please don't spoil the ending we, of Titanic for Gary. Don't tell him how it ship, ends. As long as the ship's okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> as long as everyone's fine. <laughs> All right, so we're going to spin the wheel. All right, so here we go. Todd. You did the you did the spin the wheel last time, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, let's let Gary do it this time. Yeah. Gary, spin the wheel. All right, here I go. Big money, no whammy. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Okay. Our, we are watching next week or next episode, rather, on the show from 1986, directed by Frank Oz. We're going to be watching what literally one of my favorite movies of all time. It's great. <laughs> the Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. Uh, our first musical, I think, right? Uh, my piece since I we started Cinema Shock. Yeah. One day. Um, yeah. oh, What's man, even I'm, weirder is I just watched. I think it might have been because of the last drive in with Joe Bob or something, but I just watched the, the original. original. Yeah. Yeah. Little yeah Shop he did that Horrors. one not too long ago on, on the last season. It was the last episode of the last season. Yeah, so uh, with Roger Corman, right? Two yeah. remakes back to back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Good point, Todd. Fun. Yeah, that'll be fun, man. I love this movie, so I'm very little excited shop, for this. Little uh, I, I love the soundtrack. In fact, uh, a friend of mine who's a teacher at a local school here uh, just told me the other day that they're putting on a production of Little Shop of Horrors next week. Nice. So I might have to go see it. Say, <laughs> be fun. That'd be a good little tie-in. So it'd, be that's fun, what, it'd be fun if all three of us went. Yeah, that will be fun. So it's a uh, little shop of horrors is pretty uh, easy to find. I think it's on HBO at the moment, uh, but it's available to rent and stuff anywhere. It's a very easy to find movie. So we're going to try to make these ones that we do as, as a uh, roulette ones that you can find on all the major streamings or at least one of the major streaming services. So uh, we'll be starting with little shop of horrors and uh, it might, I, I will go ahead and tell our listeners that we've got some, uh, scheduling conflicts coming up uh between probably between now and our little shop of horrors episode there might be an extra week or so like gap in between uh i'm going on vacation todd's going on vacation gary's doing a thing with the national wrestling alliance it's just all our schedule's all wacky for the next few weeks so there might be some longer gaps here and there between a couple of these episodes we'll do our best to get them out as quickly as possible maybe even throw some bonus content in there we'll see but if you if thursday morning comes along and you don't see 
the next episode. It's I promise it's coming. <laughs> We're just we just have to work with our we our st- uh, listen. Ever changing. We still schedule. love you. We still love you. We just can't be in the same Zoom room together anymore. Yeah. No. Nope. I'll be at Disney World. <laughs> Todd will be camping. I yeah, camping for the wife's birthday. Yeah. Todd is going to yeah. be much more uncomfortable than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying I'm staying in a very expensive hotel room at Disney World, and Gary will be hanging out with Billy Corgan and a bunch of wrestlers. So he might yeah. be uncomfortable as well i'm not sure <laughs> usually <laughs> usually uh anyway i guess that's it for this episode guys this is uh the end of our david cronenberg series this is a lot of fun uh, i can't wait to get back into the world of david cronenberg we will probably do that in a few months like early next year or something like that you know we'll we'll give us some time get through some other filmmakers do some cool stuff and then we'll revisit david cronenberg down the line pick up where we left off with dead ringers uh but you know go ahead i'm going to continue watching these myself i'm gonna watch dead ringers this week because i'm just in the world of david cronenberg and i want to i want to just continue on this ride for a while i want to try to finish them all before crimes of the future comes out he wants Mm. to ride david cronenberg for as long as he'll let him oh i I will i will ride (laughs) dc just for as long as i can yeah (laughs) all right before we go guys where can you be found on the internet i am at this is gary horde on all the social medias I am at Justin underscore Bishop, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and DMD Beyond. Yeah, go listen to Computer Resume. Go watch the NWA for Gary and go to cinemashock.net for all of our episode archives, our merch, our Discord, everything you need. Or uh, follow us at cinema underscore shock on Twitter, Instagram. We're on Facebook and all that stuff as well. Until next time. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you, Johnny? You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? I'll bet you think you woke me up about the keys, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the keys. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the keys. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. You see what I'm saying? And I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the keys. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. And Todd walks off set. <laughs> I know he, he, he left. <laughs> Todd left. <laughs> uh, well done, Todd.